I took the market cap of the MGLE divided by the market cap of the common. And I basically compared that to LeBron, which I thought was the most efficiently priced because there's the most action on LeBron because you get on the site, you're looking at sure. LeBron's price. Sure. Um, and basically what that did is it spit out some outliers and I just bought them all. I experienced that dip because of this legendary pack drop had everyone with the paper hands. Mm -hmm. I love saying paper hands, by the way. I love paper hands. I saw a diamond a, hand, a, Nick. A diamond hands get diamond bands story. <laughs> That's what I love about it. What's cooking, everybody? You remember the movie series, The Hangover? Of course you do. The Hangover was hilarious. To this day, you can walk into a bar, drop some one-liners from those movies, and everyone in the bar is going to know what you're talking about, and everyone's going to laugh their asses off. But right now, I want you to think back very specifically to the first Hangover movie and the scene in which Phil, Alan, and Stu returned to the wedding chapel that they had apparently attended the night before. If you remember, when they walked in, the proprietor of the institution, Eddie, greeted them, and Eddie was, to say the least, very excited to see them. And specifically, he looked right at Stu and said something like, Listen to me. I'm going to tell you something. I've met some sick, sick people in my life, but this guy, this guy's the craziest, wildest bastard I ever met. Come here. Come give Eddie some love. And he pulls Stu in close, and Stu has absolutely no idea who he was. Because Stu was the dad of the crew. I mean, this was the guy that wore glasses and New Balance sneakers, who probably at that point thought a crazy night was falling asleep on the couch with his mouth wide open at 8.15 with an untouched glass of wine sitting right in front of him. This was not the guy who went to Las Vegas to get fucked up and marry a hooker. Yet here we are. I am joined in the bunker today by the stew to my Eddie. <laughs> Nick Garol, who's probably going to kill me for saying that, but Nick Garol is a friend of mine from college who I have not seen since college. He was a year or two older than me, graduated before me, and we talk from time to time, but I haven't hung out with him, and I really only remember the Nick Garol that I knew, which was the guy who usually at about 2 a.m. would hijack the DJ booth and play the song 22 for the 50th time because apparently he didn't remember the first 49. That's my lasting memory of Nick Garol. So when this man, this upstanding citizen, molder of young minds, walked in here today with a mustache, a button-down shirt, a DNA tie, and exuding the confidence of a master's degree from Penn educator, I was probably a little bit surprised. <laughs> but I guess that's called growing up, and it's a beautiful thing to see, so I really appreciate him doing it. Now, why did I bring Nick Garol in? You're wondering, like, well, all right, what did we talk about? Nick Garol texted me about eight weeks ago and said, Julian, have you, have you checked out NBA Top Shot, which is the NFT market done by Dapper Labs in coordination with the NBA and the, and the NBA PA? We're going to get to what it is today. And I said, yes, I've, I've heard the name. I know NFTs well. I look into that stuff, but I haven't gotten a Top Shot yet. And he says, uh, well, maybe you should check it out. I'm like, I'll get to it. So then a couple of weeks ago, about five, six friends of mine hit me up and they told me the same thing. Right. And I tell them the same thing. Like, I'll get to it. I'm working on some on some NFT, ugh, NFT stuff right now, but I'll get to Top Shot. And they're like, you should really check it out. Then Thursday comes and Nick hits me up and says, listen, man, I just exited the market. I made a fuck ton of money. 
I know all about it. I've been in it, in the grind. I believe in it. I didn't exit because I don't believe in it. I'll explain why that was, but I think I should come in and we should talk about this on a podcast. And I said, absolutely. So I got him in here this weekend. We talked about it and we're turning it around right away because NBA Top Shot is a term that has taken over the internet and a lot of people are asking, are asking, what the hell is it? Today, we answer that question. Furthermore, though, one other point on this conversation. The reason I love this podcast format and doing this is because we never know where these conversations are going to go. So on this one, I'm thinking, all right, Nick's going to come in here. We're going to talk all about Top Shot and NFTs. And we did for about an hour and 55 minutes. And then out of nowhere, Nick took you into his neurological field, which operates on a completely different level, and started talking about some psychological things. And that one thing led to another, and it turns out the last hour and change of this conversation was a total left turn off the beaten path of NBA Top Shot and NFTs. And I really, really loved it. It's like two podcasts in one, in a way. So thank you to Nick for doing it. Very proud of this guy for being such a great leader in society now and, and excited to see everything he's, he's doing next. Anyway, if you're not subscribed, please subscribe. We are on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. And if you're on YouTube right now, hit that subscribe button, hit that bell button, and leave a like and comment on the video if you would, please. Furthermore, to all the people who have left five-star reviews with a comment on Apple Podcasts, thank you. I say it every week. They're amazing. They're a huge help. If you haven't had a chance to do that and can take a minute to leave one, I would really, really appreciate it. That said, you know what it is. I'm Julian Dory. And this is Trendify. This is one of the great questions in our culture. Where is the nuance? You're giving opinions and calling them facts. Everyone understands this, but few seem to do it. If you don't like the status quo, start asking questions. Let's get right to it. Okay. Because you hit you hit me up. I don't know. Like six weeks ago or something like that. Yeah. And, and you're like, Julian, you got to check out this NBA Top Shot. And then I didn't really hear anything about it. I mean, I was following it out of the corner of my eye and yeah. not really paying close attention. And then a couple of my buddies, my buddy Mitch hit me up, talking uh -huh. to me all about it like a week and a half ago. Yeah. But but the reason why I, I told you about it is because Elon Musk, our boy, apparently because he's on the screen our boy. All, all over the place. He had that clubhouse thing, right? And mm -hmm. I mean, I had no idea what clubhouse was, but I wanted to hear what he had to say because I thought there was a small chance he would be talking about Top Shot because yeah. it, it, it's not, it's right in the Doge lane. It's right in the Doge coin lane. So I was like, if he talks about Top Shot, I'm going to double my investment because we're going, we're going to Mars <laughs> with the NBA Top Shot cards. So I, so I got in and like, I was sent, I think I was in a waiting room. I was in Clubhouse Purgatory, and I think it was so like even I let you in, and yeah. you let me in. Yeah. So I was like, "Thank you, sir." You're welcome. Um, and so I listened for a little bit. Became apparent that he was just talking about Mars, which is cool. I'm into that too. Dude, but, he talked about Robin Hood on there too. Yeah. Did you hear yeah. that? Uh, I didn't stay for that, but that um, was wild. But when I got off, I said I got to go to bed because I had to teach the next day, and um, I just sent you one of my Top Shot moments. And at that point, I was I was in, I was in pretty deep, but not as deep as I got in. And I said, I got some stuff for you. I said something like cryptic because I, yeah. I think I'm very. I cool. still have the text. And um, it was a Giannis dunk, which I still have that one. 
it's like it was my first big purchase because I bought it for like seven hundred and fifty bucks. Um, mm. and uh, yeah, so I sent it to you and I said, uh, I'll, I'll, I got some stuff for you that you'll be interested in, and then we didn't talk for a while because I wasn't talking really to anybody. <laughs> yeah, you were you were you were busy making money. I was grinding. I was grinding, and uh, so yeah. Let's start off by defining NBA Top Shot for people because mm-hmm. now everyone's heard in the wind this yep. being tossed around. No one knows what the fuck it is. So just outline what it is and, and we'll start there. All right. So from the top, NFT, non-fungible token. Okay. Get Fungi- used to that. Fungibility, a fungible item, is something that can be swapped for something of equal value. So a dollar, you swap for a dollar, that's fungible. Mm-hmm. Non-fungible is interesting because you can create scarcity in the sense that uh, a LeBron card moment where 299 are minted, we'll talk about how that works, is worth way more than a Damian Lillard moment. Mm -hmm. Same scarcity, 299, 299, LeBron's career, his legacy, his demand is much higher. So mm-hmm. that's what makes it non-fungible. How do they create that scarcity? They create that scarcity through the blockchain. So just like Tops has printing presses and ink and things that no one else has access to to make um, to make uh, trading cards, mm-hmm. this Dapper Labs has something called the Flow blockchain. That's their printing press, which is not actually a printing press. It's a, it's, And Dapper Labs is who controls yeah, NBA Top Shot. Dapper mm-hmm. Labs, put a pin in that. Dapper Labs controls NBA Top Shot um, because they own the Flow blockchain, which is essentially a token, and it's a non-fungible token because it is printing these moments, um, and uh, that's creating the scarcity. So the Flow blockchain is essentially like you have a Bitcoin is equal to the same Bitcoin, but in the Flow blockchain, the LeBron moment is worth more than the Damian Lillard moment. And it's also, if there's 299 LeBron moments, you own a number. Mm-hmm. So maybe you own number one, maybe you own number 25 of it, but mm-hmm. you own a, it's not a serial mark, but in, in the parallel universe of blockchain, you own a serial marked yeah, data Yeah, they're called point serial numbers. They're called serial yeah. numbers. Okay, so they still do call it that mm-hmm. then. Okay. Mm-hmm. And when you, you keep on talking about the moment and these videos, but it really is boiled down to this company, Dapper Labs, creating these NBA top shot moments, which the moments are the videos and they are just angles of plays that you have seen on TV. So maybe it's just a ho-hum play that happened, therefore it's not worth that much and no Mm -hmm. one was involved. Or it's LeBron dunking or LeBron chasing down Andre Iguodala in game six or game seven Mm -hmm. of the NBA finals in 2016, Mm -hmm. which obviously could be worth a lot. When you get it, you get the digital version of it. Mm-hmm. So you receive a video, and there's a lot of people out there going, "What the fuck? It, like, I can just get that on YouTube." Yeah. But you receive it with the it's it's multiple different camera angles. I think some of them never spliced together that way before in broadcast. I'm not positive on that, but we'll check mm-hmm. that. And you also you get the official trademarked NBA Top Shot logo on it. So it's the same thing as like if you and it's hu- licensed by the NBA. Correct. That's the big thing. Correct. So if you hung a picture of LeBron James on your wall mm-hmm. today, right, or ten years ago, if you hung right next to it, even forget the size difference. If you hung right next to it, a rookie card made by Tops of LeBron James. Yes. That rookie card's worth a lot of money. Your picture's not. Yeah, because really, I mean, if you get the uh, a printer that you can access 
on Amazon. You can yeah. print a printer like that if you get the right paper and the right ink. Tops has specific printers that only they own, specific ink that only they own. Flow is a specific code, mm-hmm. blockchain technology that only Dapper Labs owns. And the the NBA has decided to back the Flow blockchain. And indices. the NBA PA. And the NBA PA. Yeah. Um, and the NFL PA. And whoever owns Dr. Seuss and Samsung. Dapper Labs is going to take over the internet. I'm telling you. The NFL's doing top shot? Oh, yeah. I would say within the next two years. The NFL is not a partner, but the NFLPA is. If you go on Dapper Labs' website, this is where I, mm. I'm getting into the weeds. Yeah. You scroll down our community members. So that right now, in the works, you can sign up for UFC Top Shot. Um, you can sign up for Dr. Seuss Top Shot which I am because I'm a sick, sick, twisted individual. <laughs> no, wait, how does Dr. Seuss? Top well, I'm, I'm not sure what it is. So th- another layer to this is like Top Shot is not in its final, it's not even in its final form. Um, it's eventually, eventually these moments are going to be more interactive because that's another layer. Like if I have LeBron rookie's card, it's probably in a vault and I'm never going to see it if it's 10 out of 10, mm-hmm. right? I never get to interact with it. I just own it and it's just money in a bank. Whereas the the LeBron moment, so I own this Le, LeBron moment. It's a no look three, right? I watch it all the time. It's like because I I think it's really cool and it's like a cool little thing. I can watch it over and over and over again. Eventually, I should be able to take that moment based on what I've been told through like Discord channels and stuff, and use it in like a fantasy lineup, an NBA fantasy lineup. So I can slot in my LeBron no look three. And then if LeBron... Um, if what do LeBron, you mean an NBA fantasy lineup? So there's going to be some type of interactive game with Top Shot called Hardcourt. No one knows what it is yet. Okay. So this Hardcourt, and there's some third-party ones. One's called Swish. I already think it tanked. But um, with Swish, I'll just use their rules because I, I think they're going to be close to what okay. the rules will be for the actual Dapper Labs version of, mm-hmm. of this. Which is like if you had a three-point player... You could slot in a LeBron three-point. If he scores a three-point in the game, you get points to your lineup. So If he scores a three-pointer in, in the actual NBA game going on mm-hmm. in real life. Yeah. So you use your moment as access to it. Yes. But people own all different moments of LeBron James. So mm-hmm. doesn't don't a lot of people own LeBron James? Yeah, but it's the same thing like DFS, right? So like daily fantasy sports, like anybody mm. can build a lineup using a salary. Instead of having a fixed salary, you you have to go and buy the moment beforehand. It like creates its own its own league. It's like yeah. virtual league. Yeah, I don't know if that's necessarily going to take off quite as well as as you might think because DFS already has that type of like itch cornered. Yeah. Whereas, I've heard another iteration of it could be like I can take my moments to an NBA game, and there's like some type of like Pokemon Go element where I'm capturing my own moments and sending them to the site. I don't know where it's going, but but there's a lot of interactiveness there that doesn't exist in the cardboard market. Okay. Or right. like it's kind of like like Yu-Gi-Oh you can play like yeah. Pokemon like there's going to be some aspect of that that that's going to um fuel the base of this. Where like people are like they don't really care about the scarcity. They don't really care like they're just buying one, two, three like $20 moments. That's like the bottom of the the food chain. Okay. Wow. There's a lot of there's a lot of directions we can go right now. I want to stay with the beginning. Mm-hmm. Just Tell me when you found out about this and, okay. and how you got into it. And, you know, are you an NBA fan? What? How did you make buying decisions? Let's start there. Okay, so January-ish, mid-January, um, I follow this guy on Twitter. His name's Jonathan Bales. 
Um, Jonathan Bales, I started following him like right out of college. I got I got really into like after college, I got really into fantasy sports. Um, DFS, like FanDuel, um, that type of stuff, like really started taking off. Um, and I got into it. I've never been super profitable, um, but it's just fun for me. Like I like the math behind it. I like I like watching football, so I was really into that. Um, so I followed him a lot. He's he um, he created this thing called Fantasy Labs, which I actually never subscribed to, but I think it's a cool idea. He um, it's basically a site that allows you to manipulate data and uh, like will spit out good plays in daily daily fantasy. It's a big site now. He sold it to the Churning Group. Mm -hmm. um and Mm -hmm. he's really just kind of like a an investor now like a venture capitalist whatever you want to call it so he writes this newsletter and um it's called lucky maverick and in this newsletter he just gives out like some cool books he's been reading like um uh, ways of thinking about certain things and one day he wrote this article i just bought a thirty-five thousand dollar video that you can watch on youtube so i read it he talked about like he kind of laid out his um, his uh, kind of creed for investing and how this fit and checked all the boxes. He talked about NFTs. I was like, that's cool. Sent it to my buddy Alex. Sent the article. I was like, this looks pretty cool. What did he? What did he? What was his logic there? Because you know you hear the title and he's trying to get the clicks there to be able to show like, yeah, that's literally what I did. And then people go, well, yeah. this must be worth nothing. But clearly to him, it's not. So well, what was he saying? It, it was checked worth? a lot of boxes for him in the sense of like. The scarcity's there. Um, he could see, like, the world's going digital. Um, he saw, like, the cardboard market blew up. This is just a digital version of that. And with that digital version comes more efficiency. It's way more efficient in the sense of, like, buying and selling is more liquid. With the cardboard market, you have to get graded. You have to wait for eBay. You have to wait for mailing. Like, this is just a more efficient. And because things move faster, prices can go up faster. Mm. Um, so... Aside from that, like he had other things and layered in, but I was, I, I didn't, I can't say that I bought in right away. Um, but my buddy did, he bought 10 packs and you had to find a pack for people. And a pack is like, it's like a pack of baseball cards. Um, when you buy a pack, you, um, you take it, you open it up and it spits out some moments and you click on them and they reveal themselves and then you see what you got. Mm -hmm. Um, so he got 10 series two packs, um, and at the time, I mean, they're nine bucks. They're still nine bucks, but it's very hard to get them now. Getting 10 is impossible and probably will be impossible for the rest of the lifetime of the site. Because how many how many do they make? Like, can I just go on? Are there other kinds of packs I can go on right now and I no. can per- – No. Okay, so they're doing them like sneaker drops where you get in a waiting room and then you get a random spot in line. And if you're within the number that they're releasing, you get one. If not, you don't get one. And then you have to go to the secondary market to buy anything. And then you if want. you don't get a pack, you go to the secondary market. And that's where Dapper's making their money. And that's where people like me are making their money is the secondary market. Now, the secondary market is like StockX. It's like the stock market. It's just these yeah. moments mm-hmm. trade by, you know, moment. It, it's, it runs for 24 hours a day. Oh, right? yeah. yeah. I mean, they've, they've, they're in beta still. So mm-hmm. the market will go down. And sometimes the market goes down because I think there's legitimate uh site status issues but in my experience the market has gone down at some pretty uh inconvenient times um but funny how that happens yeah yeah but it it's framed in a way that it's but they're in beta they've been very transparent and honest about everything like when Robinhood goes down and they don't allow trading that's a pretty big problem but when this goes down yeah 
when this goes down, like they talk about why, and um, I think every time that it's gone down, they've actually had a pretty good reason. But I think I'm just kind of assigning some meaning to some things because I really wanted to either not sell a moment that sold when it went down, or um, I wanted to um, sell some moments because I was like, I want to get rid of this one. But, yeah. But yeah, so that's the so that's how I got in. So my my buddy bought ten packs. I I I didn't get in right away. Um, two weeks later. I don't know what trigger. How do you it. get 10? They were just sitting on the site. Back then in January fourteenth, um, which is a month and a half ago. The man wasn't there yet. Just sitting on the site. Um and so about two weeks later, it started to pick up a little bit. Um so after the so after the Bales article, thirty five thousand dollars, it like the DFS community got in. Um so like the fantasy football, very active um mm-hmm. Twitter community. And, um, so like all the content creators started getting into it and, um, that I kind of get, got in with them. How many of these people do you think, or do you know, seem to be NBA fans versus they were just looking at a good trend where there's supply and clear and clear demand? The NBA fans are just now getting into it. When I got in, it was NFT heads, crypto heads. It was, uh, people like me. I won't even say that I was looking to make a quick buck. I just saw that it was... I saw an opportunity for an edge, and if I doubled my money, great. If I lost it, I think I was like, I went into it with like, I'm gonna learn a lot about how markets work. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I was okay, and like my my friend who invested with me, and then later my uncle could just tell how excited I was about it. So he he helped us out a lot. We call, we we call his investment jet fuel, um, and uh, so like I was just into it. Um, but I was I I like I, I'm not an NBA fan. I'm still not an NBA fan. Like. I'll probably I want to get into it, but at the same time, like the NBA fans are just now getting into it. And the funny thing is, is NBA itself has not advertised it at all. They have not themselves run an ad since January twentieth. So when but I they fir- were running ads, they were doing then. Instagram and YouTube ads, and they only did them for about a week because after the Bales article, there was a a mini there was a mini influx. It cooled down for about two weeks. Um, and then Mark Cuban wrote an article, Gary Vee wrote an article, Logan Paul talked about it on his mm-hmm. podcast. Um, who was it? Uh, Barstool, P- PMT started talking about it. Yeah. Like that's where we are now. And, uh, I don't know if you can show a graphic or if I can show you a graphic. What's uh, what, what site is it on? It's, it's just a text. I'll just have to text it to you. It's, uh, yeah, I'll put it, oh, I'll, actually, I'll put, I'll put it in the screen. So, so just tell me what it says. So it's like, it's a, it's a graph. And it literally looks like Mount Everest. <laughs> it spikes. I got in at the bottom <laughs> of the foothills, and I sold up here. Yeah. And uh, so now so, is the spike still happening? No, it's it's down. But that's okay. just because they're not able to produce enough supply for the demand that there is right now. So all the money's tied up in in Top Shot, and there's really it's just going, it's just funneling into the the more scarce stuff. So right when now, when you say more scarce stuff. Mm-hmm specifically so there's two series there's series one and series two Mm. um series one obviously is more valuable than series two for a couple reasons they didn't make as many series ones because they print the amount base the amount that they print on their common moments is based on the number of users interacting with the site so a common series one the mint number on it is out of five thousand because when they printed series one there were only about three thousand or sorry 
There might have only been like 10,000 people. Hence why your buddy got 10 packs when he went on. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, Series 2, the mint, the, the denominator mint number was 15,000. Okay? That's not enough anymore. The next round that they're going to do, Series 3, is going to be at least 25,000. So every common moment that's printed, because there's common, there's rare, there's legendary, and then there's going to be ultimate. Yeah. So as an example, just to mm -hmm. be clear, when you're saying common to legendary and there's rare in the middle legendary would be that example i gave of like the chase down block lebron on Nagadala. the actual play itself is not assigned a rarity okay so there can be three versions of the same play mm. at different tiers of rarity so that's one of the edges that i found now what are they okay so let's stay with the lebron chase down block example mm -hmm. Nagadala. so there's a common there's a rare and there's a legendary what's the difference between them the scarcity and right but what's the, the difference in the product there's a there's a visual um there's a visual difference as well so the the rare version of the moment will have this like neon box around the front of it um it's a little shinier uh the logo on the side has color where the common moment is just like it's like a matte black but you can tell it's like lakers um and then the the it's just like if you go on the site and look like you can tell which ones are fancier and stuff like that yeah I didn't play around at the higher levels of rarity. Um, I basically made my money in Series 1 common. Now, how do, how do you concept this from the value of having it standpoint? What do I mean by that in English? When you buy a LeBron rookie card, Gem Min 10, whatever, something really high-end for mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of dollars at this mm -hmm. point, you have the physical card. Right now, is that something that I've ever been really, really into? Like having like, oh, I got a sports card or something? Personally, no. But I completely get that because mm -hmm. people can frame it. They can hang it on their wall. If they have people over, yeah. they show them. Same way that, you know, you see some of these very wealthy people around the world. They collect art, mm -hmm. right? They put it on their fucking walls. Mm -hmm. Or maybe they put some of it in a vault because they're tax harvesting or hiding from taxes, whatever. Mm -hmm. But a lot of it's like, oh, I have this. This is a part of my lifestyle, my decor. When you are buying a Top Shot moment, though, you don't have it physically. You have it on your computer. And if I'm understanding correctly, this is built the, – the, the flow protocol is built on the Ethereum blockchain. So mm -hmm. it, your assets are stored in a digital wallet, much like you, a lot of people stare, um, store their, their Bitcoin or Ethereum or other cryptocurrency mm -hmm. on um, Coinbase or mm -hmm. a centralized exchange that gives them a wallet there that's not – officially yeah. like a separate wallet but it's it's a it's a digital wallet so with top shot it's the same right uh yeah so that's actually one of the interesting things about it because because like that's one of the things about non-fungible tokens that i don't think people fully grasp yet at least from my understanding is i'm going to be able to take my top shot moments off of the top shot site yes i'm gonna so if you look at the like you can take a bitcoin off of coinbase yes same thing. if you look at coinbase's i don't i guess it's coinbase wallet I don't know if anyone's noticed this, but there is a tab for collectibles. Yeah. I didn't, I'm very new to crypto. Yep. This is my introduction to crypto. Um, I'm going to be able to have my top shot moments in, in this Coinbase wallet. But this also makes it really cool. But like if a third party app wants to, wants to create a game around top shot moments, I'm going to be able to take my top shot moments to that site. I'm going to have them be able to interact with that site without the worry of them being ripped and copied. What do you mean a third-party app wants to create a game around my moment? So, like, if 
if a if a third party app, so there's this one called Swish. Mm-hmm. If a third party app wanted to um wanted to create a, a fantasy game that is based off of top shot moments. They set up their own set of rules, they set up everything, like I'm gonna be able to take them to that site and have them live on that site and interact with that site. That's what I'm having trouble concepting though. Mm-hmm. They're making up a a fantasy let's stay with the basketball example, a fantasy basketball game around moments that already happened. Mm-hmm. So it's essentially... It's tough. That's tough to grasp. I'm, th- I'm not going to lie. That's my point. When you're playing fantasy basketball, you are, and, and if you're in a mm-hmm. league for money, like we all are, you are betting on what you don't know happens yet. Yeah. You're not betting on who has the biggest dick around here and could buy the most. Yeah. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. There's, there's, It's like it inserts a lot of capitalism into it where it used to be a pure gambling slash skill. That's right? why I don't think this particularly is going to be a good use of an NFT outside of the collectible realm. I think like the the real ceiling for NFTs is the collectible realm. It's going to get that, but also the interactive kind of aspect of it. So I think that's like... What's the interactive aspect? So it's hard to imagine that with Top Shot because of what you described. That's what I'm asking but on let's, Top Shot. Yeah. Let's go back to the Dr. Seuss. Okay. That one is probably going to be less collectible heavy and more interactive heavy. So... I don't even know. So, like, let's say I buy the Lorax, right? (laughs) Whatever this NFT site is, is, like, and it's going to be for kids. Like, they're going to be able to use that Lorax like a Fortnite skin. Mm. So, like, they're monetizing in a a way more intense way, like, the idea that kids want to buy digital collectibles. They want to have their – what was the old – game where you modeled stuff sims i think yeah, yeah. they want to have their sims online where they're playing mm-hmm. their video games and stuff yeah. i had i had cole Canelli in here back in uh the end of december and it was the first episode in january and obviously he is a hacker on the ethereum blockchain has his own protocol really yeah. killing it volmex.finance he essentially built a volatility index for Ethereum on the Ethereum blockchain. So mm-hmm. he took what they do with the S&P in the stock market yeah. with the vol index and built it there. And yeah. it's a pretty incredible product. But he was the guy who really got me looking into NFTs. And like I said, I Top Shot is one. It's kind of a separate thing. I haven't looked at that as much, mm-hmm. but I look at NFTs a lot. And that was the first example he gave. He said, when you're talking about owning assets in a in a digital world where you are interacting in the world, you're going to own that. So in the video games, if you're playing Madden and you own this type of jersey, like let's yeah. just use something ridiculous like that. Mm-hmm. You own it. No one else does. And it can't the, the video game maker who allows the graphic to happen has no ownership over it, can't take it from mm-hmm. you. That's it. It can't be fucked with. Yeah. So with Top Shot, you're still you're it's the YouTube video concept. It's not like you're owning skins in Fortnite. You own a YouTube video that has a NBA Top Shot logo on it. Yeah. So the interactivity, I guess the fantasy is one side of it, but is there anything else you can do beyond that? As of right now, no, other than watching it. It's purely a collectible. So back to the original part where I started this this part of the conversation right here. Physical items you can put on your wall, mm-hmm. have in front of you, be able to show you got them. It's like, you know, yeah. sociable in that way. Mm-hmm. I mean, are, are you whipping out, like, 
people don't come to your house and see on your wall your moment yeah. necessarily. Although I'm sure that's going to be a more normal thing where we used to have digital frames. Exactly. Where mm-hmm. we have digital frames. So seeing as we don't have that world yet is a lot of, are a lot of the investors who maybe actually know what they're doing, not just the people running into the pig pile. Are they buying on the basis of that's the world that's going to be existing? So they want it now. Is that what you think? Um, I just think they understand that people will want to collect these. They're not as worried about displaying them. I thought about like how to display them. I thought about the digital frames. I think it's enough to know that like, hey, look me up. My Top Shot username is Stranger. <laughs> Go look at my moments. But is it, that really your name? Yeah, Stranger. That's incredible. Yeah. Um, and uh, the in, in Top Shot itself, like you can make a showcase. So mm. like it itself is a little bit of a social, social media social media platform. Yeah. And so, I think they're gonna they're flush they'll flush that out, flush that out a little bit. So they do this on on the flow protocol on the Ethereum blockchain, like mm-hmm. we said. But you you transact everything on the website. Yeah. Right? So you go in there, it's just like if someone went into StockX mm-hmm. and they looked at the charts and then they saw a price for a product they wanted, they hit buy, right? Mm-hmm. How does it work? Do you get your information right there? Can you see what your code is on the blockchain and yeah. what your numbers are. And, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. And it is technically a centralized exchange though, because this is, they're the New York Stock Exchange of Top Shot. Yeah. Right? So hypothetically, the exchange itself could be hacked. Uh, I mean, I'm, I'm, I guess I don't really have the, the technical know-how. Um, I think the... I, I, I'm trusting when I was investing, I was trusting that like the idea of blockchain was more secure than I just think that like that itself is a very secure technology. I agree with you. Comparatively speaking, certainly, Mm -hmm. certainly, depending on the context of what you're looking at, but certainly, but like when you look back at crypto, that's a major question and concern around Coinbase that a lot of people have had. Probably a big blind spot of mine. Honestly, I mean, look, back in the day, you know, people who were early in Bitcoin know about Mt. Gox and what mm-hmm. happened there. Mt. Gox was an exchange. I got no idea what you're talking about. So Mt. Gox was mm-hmm. a centralized exchange. Think of it just like Coinbase, right? Coinbase before Coinbase. And it crashed and burned. And there were, I think it was, we can check this after, but I think there were something like 850,000 Bitcoins stolen from there, mm-hmm. just taken off because yeah. they weren't on their own wallet. Just okay. like how on Coinbase right now, if you have some assets there, which I actually do have some assets on Coinbase, I know that that's technically not in my own wallet. So now I'm working on getting everything to my own wallet. Mm-hmm. So, so like wh- on the thing that has the 20 word password that the guy lost and now he's absolutely. shit out of luck. It's, it's essentially like, a, it's, it's like putting it on a hard drive. Mm-hmm. It's very bizarre to concept it. Yeah. It's, it's like a weird thing, but you own it in the ether on your own physical product. It puts the personal responsibility on you. So people are going to be doing that, mm-hmm. already are, with NBA Top Shot. I have heard about that. But this the, the execution is very interesting to me because it's happening almost like you would expect things to happen, and I mean this in a simple way, like you did in 2008 or 2009. In the sense that if you wanted to go, just like Amazon today, if you want to go buy something on Amazon, mm-hmm. well, you know, we have apps and everything too, which still have an app as well where you can do it. But you just go to the website and you buy it there. And that's all you're doing here. And they just happen to take care of the back end where you own it according to the blockchain protocol. Yep, that's my understanding. Whew. And yeah, I mean, it, it, it can be, I mean, it, there's a chance it could be hacked. There's a chance that my bank account could be hacked. Probably better chance. <laughs> I was just gonna say, like, I have a pretty 
I'm not going to tell you what my bank is. Never mind. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but yeah, so this, uh, another, another reason to be bullish on Top Shot um, is they've been attacked pretty hard by bots. So the same bots that are buying up all the sneakers, the same bots that are buying up everything, yeah. they've, they've done better in my experience and in my research than many, many, many other sites at combating that. Um, How do you combat that? I don't know. I think they have people smarter than the people making the bots. So the people making the bots, mm -hmm. are you talking about people who are essentially building high-frequency trading algorithms to do this versus bad actors who are just coming in there to fuck shit up? So there's uh, – you named two. So there's bots that are trying to buy all the packs mm. who are quickly um, creating multiple IPs so they look like they're on multiple computers, multiple accounts – because one account, one pack is basically how you how you do it. So today there was a pack drop, ten thousand rare packs, expected value on one ninety nine dollars to buy. Expected value is pro excuse me, it's probably two thousand to four thousand dollars. It's a it's a very good lottery ticket essentially. So if how you, many people were waiting for those ten thousand? Sorry, two hundred and three thousand. So ten thousand people got them. Mm hmm. And um. Like I said, like the the one of the moments was a rare moment that would fetch at least a thousand bucks, um, and I kind of lost my train of thought here. What am I thinking? Oh, bots! They were gonna do it yesterday, but bots got to the site and they didn't release the pack because there was too much bot activity. So, mm. um, the idea is that like ten thousand people, early days in the, in Top Shot. Um, they release like 50,000 packs. And if you got one, you could get back in line and get another one. And they'd release these cool pie charts that show like, these are the number of unique accounts that got um, packs. See this big block? That's bots. We're going to handle it. Mm. So bots got to the site. As far as packs- So they can take it from them. Not take it from them, but they, they, basically, um, they basically don't let them do anything with them. Yeah. So that's my understanding. I think that's the way that they're punishing the bots. But since then, bots can't even do that, um, at least in my experience. And if they are doing it, it's being hidden very well. Um, there's other bot activity where I think that I took advantage of it is they were buying up the floor. Um, mm. So they bought up the floor and... Meaning where, where, the, where the prices got to a support point. Mm -hmm. They bought up the floor and then I, I think recently dumped for whatever margin they wanted um and they're just they just did that kind of before this hits mainstream i think because eventually eventually i think there's gonna be so many people on this that buying up the floor is gonna be very difficult yeah um for yeah. one like bot or multiple bots to do um but yeah so they've, they've done a great job with that which which gives me confidence in like their technical know-how they're very smart people and they also have like i don't i mean if you look at their they have their investors it's it's everybody, man. Like all the big players. Do you see are... their valuation? It's a da Dapper Dapper Labs is at a two billion dollar valuation. They just raised two hundred fifty million dollars like last week. That like that. Mm -hmm. And here's the thing: with these projects, and, and don't get me wrong, I don't want to understate those numbers. Those are fucking huge numbers for yeah. a, a non-public company to raise, and mm -hmm. especially considering I think their last raise was like twelve million dollars, and yeah. I want to say it was like three months ago. Mm -hmm. It's not long ago. And their their secondary market, they get five percent of it. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll definitely circle back to that later mm -hmm. we'll, we'll miss some things that we're coming back to because there's a lot of moving pieces here but i yeah. want to hit as much as we can yeah. so 
they raise that much money, one of the major keys there is not like were they going to get it. They were going to get it. If you've watched the last month and seen the the spread of the network effects here, mm-hmm. like you you talked about how the NBA only advertised on some Instagram ads and stuff for like a week and then they stopped. Mm-hmm. I think and there's one of two things that happen here and give me your thoughts. On one hand, on the one hand, like anything else in the world, the NBA's lawyers may have come in and said, hey, we don't know enough about whatever yet. This insert small little thing here. So don't say anything. And the market's doing well. Just don't say anything. That could be one thing. The other thing is that could have been a coordinated plan thing in that they're playing off of this, this scarcity mm-hmm. of what the product is that they sell, which is this scarce product yeah. and doing the same thing by saying, oh, no, we don't talk about that. Same thing that you've seen with Clubhouse do in a different, in a totally different light. Where Clubhouse, yeah. exactly, they make people have to join the app, mm-hmm. like be invited to join the app. So, are you asking me like the reason they stopped advertising? Like why? Yeah, one of those two. Do you think they they had a team of ten people plus the founder working on this, and they had a user base of ten thousand? This blew up way faster than they thought yeah. it would. Um, so they stopped advertising to slow the influx of flux of users so they could scale up. When I got in, so I got in after the $35,000 Ja Morant article, I had, there was about a 12-hour window that what, I got what in. What was the Ja Morant article? It was the, the Bales. Oh, got it, Yeah, got Bales it, wrote it, the article. Yeah, he yeah, basically yeah. got the daily fantasy community into it. That's the video. I came bought. in with them. Um, and then in between that, like there was, it was a Sunday, about 12 hours. Two moments sold for a hundred thousand mm. dollars, and that that created a hockey stick. And I was lucky enough to get in right before the hockey stick, um, to a certain degree. It hockey sticked up, and then it kind of came back down. And where are we? You know, do you have a percentage on that? Where we stand right now? Percentage of what? Like how far down it's come off the top? Oh, that was just initial. We've gone nuclear since then. Oh. Yeah. Okay. So it went. So basically, they had a day where they did seven million in sales, which was a big day. A couple of things happened. Basically, they weren't able to scale up. Their servers were literally on fire. They shut down marketing. They kind of slowed everything down on purpose. And um, new users were still coming in, buying stuff up. It was a real fun time on the site. Um, but it really hit a, a bo- it almost bottomed out. Like, not quite completely, but it bottomed out to where like my account value went down a couple thousand dollars. And, um, because they tried to do a pack drop and they just botched it. And it was a legendary pack drop. So you were, it was a thousand dollars for a pack. And I Mm. think they had like, they were, I think there were a thousand, there were a thousand packs. What were some example moments in there? Just to put a visual on it for an NBA fan. It was a fan. series two. Um, I'm trying to think of a good one. Maybe. Uh, was that where LeBron's dunk was that went for like 200K on the secondary? That was series one. This, is, this one was um, like an Anthony Davis dunk. Like like good plays. But the the big thing was like the scarcity, right? You know, when they drop this though, like mm-hmm. they do a drop like that with the legendary. Isn't it a lot of different plays? Yeah, it's a ton of different okay, plays. Okay, okay. Yeah. It's not just one. No, so there's there were like 10 hollow icon Series 2 moments. Like there was a, another John Morant in there. There was um, just like the big players get big plays, and it was like some of their best plays. 
really scarce. Only 50 were made. Plus, it comes with nine other moments, and some of those are rare. So it's a very good pack. The expected value on it was absolutely insane. Um, so everybody wanted one. So they do the pack drop, and they did a couple stress tests before. They did a couple practice runs where they dropped like 5,000 common packs just to test this new queue system. Everything was looking good, but they um, small little coding hiccup, right? Mm. They did not anticipate people going back to the landing page to join the drop after they joined the drop. And if you went back to the landing page after you joined the drop, you just were able to buy. You were able to skip the line. <laughs> so thankfully, like enough, it, there, were, there weren't enough. Bots didn't get to it, thankfully, but a couple people got like eight, right? Which yeah. is just printing money, like for free. And they didn't take them away from anybody. Yeah. It was It was their fault. They acknowledged it, but like a faith in the site kind of dropped a little bit. Uh, the marketplace really cooled down. People started dumping moments. I, I almost had those. When was this? This was, this was early February. Okay. Probably, and like second week in February. Got it. Um, I almost had those paper hands, Julian. <laughs> I almost had those paper hands. You got diamond hands, Nicholas. But what I actually did was I bought in more at the dip because I was like diamond hands, yeah. baby. And um, what I did was. This is where I actually, I think, this was like my peak, like of being into it, is I took the rare, so like I said, they have one moment can have a legendary, a rare, and a common counterpart. And that's the, that's the core sets, okay? Okay. So there's the common, the base set is one, is the, is the first core set. Then you have the metallic gold LE, there's the rare version of the base set. And then you have the hollow icon. Okay. So the, the, the more legendary ones, the, the rarer ones look a lot prettier. And they're, yeah, and they're scarcer, and yeah, people just Got want it. them. It, the, the big sell is a scarcity. Yeah. Um, so you can have, um, I'm trying to think of a specific play that I looked at. So a st there's, a, well, there's a Steph Curry 3, right? This is a good example that I can think of. It's, um, it's before the bubble, so there's a big crowd. He, he pulls up from like, I don't even know, what is, what is a three-pointer? How many feet? 25 feet 25 feet he pulls oh. up from probably like 35 it's a deep three just like catch boom just patented steph curry just dagger yeah turns around gives like this like the three he's wearing mm -hmm. these crazy shoes like sticks his tongue out it's an awesome moment okay so that when i bought it was like um it was like i don't know like 100 bucks and when did you buy that i bought that at the beginning of february right now look it up look up a steph curry base set series one Three-pointer. Steph Curry. What's it? Base set? Mm-hmm. NBA top Three shot. Three-pointer. Mm-hmm. NBA top shot. Yeah, the, the price action on some of this stuff is nuts. Let's see. Pull it up behind you there. That's the yeah, moment. that's the one. So this is number 718. Yep. I guess that's just the one I clicked. Look for available. Uh, 76 available by collectors. Yeah, click, click that. Yeah, click on that. Yep. $3,450, ladies and gentlemen. Highest price, $200,000. So yeah. that means that someone is has put out their limit sale at $200,000, so they're just a little bit pipe dream right there, but maybe not. Yeah. And then the I lowest mean, available price is $3,450. Yeah. So, um, so other than like, I mean, obviously, this, like I said, I was early, so I yeah. was able to buy up all these things. But at the time, I was like, what do you buy? So what I did was is I took, I took the rare version of that play because there's a rare version of that one. And um, I looked at the price of that and I said, 
okay, so these rare moments, the, the people that are playing around in this tier probably know what they're doing. Yeah. If they're putting this type of money in, they probably have some type of algorithm or something. So I'll take that one and I'll just do some math. And I will, I, I made a spreadsheet and I basically took the market cap of the rare one. I took the price times the scarcity. Um, I took the market cap of the common and then I divided them. And if, and then I used LeBron as, as kind of like my base point, basically like, cause I thought LeBron was the most efficiently priced. You divided them by the total supply. I divided them by each other. I took the market cap of the MGLE divided by the market cap of the common. And I basically compared that to LeBron, which I thought was the most efficiently priced because there's the most action on LeBron because you get on the site, you're looking at sure. LeBron's price. Sure. Um, and basically what that did is it spit out some outliers and I just bought them all. <laughs> so what were some outliers you bought? I ended up with all like like Steph Curry, Joe Embiid was a big outlier. Um, Joe Kitch was a big outlier. Kevin Durant was a big outlier. James Harden was a big outlier. And this is, you're talking like all mid-January right now, end of this January, early, beginning of this February? This is early February. Okay. Yeah, so, I mean, it turns out like I think I'm like this super sharp guy, but again, anything Series 1 skyrocketed. So, How um, much money did you put into this? So I put in myself about $3,500. Um, my, my buddy who had the packs originally... We valued those appropriately, and then he put in, in like another sixteen hundred. And then my uncle had some Bitcoin lying around because he got burnt. He got burnt when it went from I think thirteen thousand debt back down to whatever. Not anymore though. Not anymore. But he he just had like a few hundred bucks sitting around in his okay. Coinbase wallet. He's older, not as bought into crypto. He's like, oh, I got now thirty five hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin yep. just lying in my Coinbase wallet that I forgot about. He's like, here, use it. So all said, we're a little over 8K, maybe 9K um, Got overall. It. Okay, so you, you guys are like a consortium going in there. And I also like this because you're not, you know, you look at things like this and people always bring up the word bubble. I definitely want to talk about that later because I, I think there's a lot of nuance to these situations. And it's also nascent, so we can't really tell on everything yet. But mm -hmm. it's not like you went in and said, you know what, I'm going to put 100 grand in this. I'm going to put 150 grand. No, you, I didn't you, have that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, you went in and you said, okay, well, what, what are some assets I'm willing to lose here because this is fucking interesting and let's see what happens. Mm-hmm. So I put AK in with with uh, my friend and my uncle, right? And my thought was like, I'm, I there's, I think there's a pretty big edge to be had here. Um, I think that we're gonna make some money, um, at the very least. But I also think I want to learn how this works, and it kind of like incorporated a lot of different things I'd been reading about. It incorporated a lot of different things that I was interested in. Um, so I was like, what the hell? I'm just sitting around and. I just looked at it as a learning opportunity, and I mean, there was the underlying thing. I was like, I think I can make a lot of money off of this. So I experienced that dip because of this legendary pack drop, had everyone with the paper hands. Mm -hmm. I love saying paper hands, by the way. I love paper hands. I saw a diamond a, hand, a, Nick. A diamond hands get diamond bands story. <laughs> That's what I love about it. So I held through that, and I actually invested. I did the little MGLE versus common base um, thing. Um, with the spreadsheet and um, I actually funny story about that so when I was doing all that math and stuff I had to manually look up all the prices if you try to do that now the market moves so fast that that would probably not be very, yeah your, your very tables viable. your tables just aged in yeah, five minutes yeah yeah so um, I actually am still trying to learn Python like web scraping I want to make that spreadsheet I made 
just to see if I could do it. I don't mm. even know if it's valuable anymore, but I'm close to getting it so that the the lowest ass price would update live, but they're tricky. Scraping yeah, yeah. scraping NBA Top Shot is not an easy task. I someone listening to this probably knows how to do it. Um, hit well, me up. <laughs> well, that's what they're building. They're, I mean, it's in the same family of, of bot activity. They're mm-hmm. trying to build against that. They want yeah. to build an efficient marketplace where people create a value on yeah. something because, I mean, because you're not like a huge regular markets guy, right? You're no. not like a stock market guy. No, I'm a middle school science teacher. Yeah. So, <laughs> so, so basically, if you look at the, if you look at the markets that we know, the major disruption that happened that created the markets we know now off of the ones that were say around 15 years ago or even a little before then was the high frequency trading Mm -hmm. and if if people ever read the big short or saw the movie the same guy who wrote that michael lewis writes a lot of finance books and they're incredible and one that he wrote back in maybe like 2012 2013 something like that was called flash boys where he outlined this movement and how this happened and motherfuckers were building fiber optic cabling underneath like the mountains in Pennsylvania yeah. to get from Minnesota to New York in one nanosecond versus a nanosecond and a half to be able to trade very quickly. Yeah. So when you see these other marketplaces rising up like sneakers, collectibles, mm-hmm. items, things like that, the places that create these exchanges, the companies that do it, their incentive, you hope, is for the love of the game and the love of the the, the space that they're in and, and actively yeah. promoting that market. So they're going to want to create an environment where people are not just taking advantage of the math around it and they're more or less actually valuing like what does this actually – what is the value of yeah. the thing I'm buying mean to me and therefore setting the market price that way. And I think the people coming into the market now are coming in to buy moments with that mindset. They're not coming in trying to figure out like what's the edge here. Mm. like how can i get a quick flip which um a couple of different reasons why i think again i'm still bullish on top shot is one they pay attention to the market dynamics and they care about the health of the market um they are doing things actively to maintain the health of the market um but while also letting people like make money off of it um and then at the same time they're also they they want the collector. They want the NBA fan in. They do not want the bots. They do not want the quick flip. You know what I mean? And what about guys like you though? Because you're not necessarily an NBA fan. I mean, I I'm honestly like I I took advantage of of it. Sure. Um, but when I was in it, I was participating in the community. I was on the discords. I was super interested. I was DMing community managers. I was like. I was a I I played the game the way they wanted me to play it. I'm just leaving probably before they want me to leave. Um, why are you leaving? Because I'm not, I just, I don't look at the moments and like, I don't get that. Like, I'm not an NBA fan. If I was mm. in, if this was NFL, I'd be, this would be it for me. Like, so I, when the NFL comes around, yeah, I'm, look I'm the all fuck in. out. Yeah, that's stranger. the thing. Like, like, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm into that. I just don't, I'm not going to watch the NBA because of Top Shot. Um, so, yeah. That's interesting. So the appeal of it, even though there's a lot of money, floating around and the concept the allure is that there's money to be made and we know that works both ways mm-hmm. especially with markets that heat up too fast or whatever you at the end of the day you know a month and a half in have the realization that like hey this was interesting to learn these concepts and get into this world and get used to it but i'm not just going to become an nba fan so therefore i don't necessarily want to participate in this anymore yeah and plus it was a grind it was a big grind like, how much watch- time were you spending on it 
I mean, I teach about six to seven hours a day, so I wasn't doing it during then. Although that one spreadsheet I did, I was proctoring a test, and <laughs> so I was grinding it while I was working. That's the only that's the only time I did that. And uh, and my kids, their test grades for that that they broke records, so <laughs> it did not affect my students. It, I want whoever's watching this. It did not affect my students' uh, <laughs> ability to succeed. Trust me. If anything, I just left them alone, and they did better. Um, but yeah, so outside of that, I mean, my girlfriend can attest to this. It consumed me. Like, I, I mean, I lost some weight because I would like <laughs> forget to eat. <laughs> so like probably three hours a night, at least conservatively. And you're, tr- look, I mean, you talk about building the spreadsheets and stuff, yeah. but beyond that, you are just watching market action to be able to build those Watching market action, but like heavily involved in like private discords with like other users that were in mm. early on like watching that what they're talking about adding in my own stuff like sharing my spreadsheets and like having people like check it like checking other people's spreadsheets like like just being a member of the community like took up a lot of my time um and for me like the profits to be made because that's why i got into this in the first place money now that i've i've i've, I've learned how it works to a certain extent at least to a point where i'm satisfied now that it's it's like the money to be made versus the grind, it's just like if I keep grinding, I'm not going to see the same type of return. You know what I mean? So like to me, if I were an NBA fan, like it would kind of close that gap for me a little bit, but I'm just not. So right. I mean, and then again, though, I'm, I am kind of getting a little bit as the market's dipping a little bit, like I'm starting to see that edge come back again. I might, I might, I might, uh, I might dip my toe back in. But I mean, for the most part, I have my like five moments that I think. I didn't sell them because I I didn't think it was a good time to sell them. But I think how many that, moments did you buy and sell like in the course of six eight week period? I had ninety <sighs> at one point, which I mean it's above average. But I mean pe- people will build a portfolio of ninety moments like pretty yeah. quickly. Um, some out of packs, most on the secondary market. But I churned those out eight k's worth in a month and a half and then i i just started having that realization it's like i don't want to keep grinding this because i'm not a greedy person per se Mm. i don't think about money a whole lot just because i don't really come from money and like this was my first real experience of like some real serious like cash some quiche (laughs) and i didn't like like what i was becoming like i was losing sleep i was like watching like dollar signs like I don't think affected my teaching or anything, um, but, like, I definitely, like, wasn't putting added, like, effort into being creative with, like, my lesson plans, Mm. which, like, I'm constantly doing, which, like, is what I get joy out of, and so I was just, like, yeah, it's time to go. Like, I hit hit an account valuation about a week and a half ago of $56,000, and I was, like, it's time. It's time to do it. Luckily, I sold at the top of Mount Everest. Like I could buy back everything that I sold the twice over. Mm. Um, maybe that that might be an exaggeration, but I could definitely get everything back for less than what I sold. But it you for. said the hockey stick came back down after you sold, but now it's like back up again. No, so it went seven million in sales mm-hmm. record. Yep, kind of a two to three week little bottom out, and then up to I think it was I want to get the number right sixty five million. Mm. And I sold at the 65 million point. And right now, money isn't leaving Top Shot. Okay. It's just being focused into 
at the actually valuable stuff. So it's being focused out of series two into series one and the more rare cards because people are like flipping and, and leveling up from common to rare. They're flipping and leveling up from series two to series one. And one big thing is like, it's going to like, if you put money in top shot, so anyone listening to this, if you want to put money in Top Shot, do not expect to get your money out for at least six to eight weeks. Why is that? Because they have to verify your identity, which mine is, mm-hmm. and they have to um, they have to look at your transaction history manually to confirm you're not like money laundering. Okay, and that's that's what they're telling. But they also, I mean, this thing would have crashed weeks ago if people could just pull out whenever they wanted to. That so, so they're checking for money laundering. Into their products. How do yeah. they even check for that? I guess, I mean, I don't know how they check for it, but they're checking for it. That's that's very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Because I, I may have mentioned this earlier quickly, but one of the major question marks around the fine art collectibles, whatever, market around the world always has been is the money laundering that happens mm-hmm. through it. And the the basically cheating on your taxes and there's all kinds of complicated ways that can happen. We don't need to get into Mm -hmm. it, but those things happen. So one of the questions around NFTs and it's obviously we're right in the wheelhouse here with NBA top shot is that being able to shield your assets on this Mm -hmm. from those types of, you know, whether it be the IRS or whatever, it's harder because you're doing it through centralized exchanges that have an immutable ledger that knows who owns what. Exactly. It's like impo- it's not even harder. It's it's borderline impossible. Yeah. So if and this is the big question, if the value of the fine art market is largely as it turns out defined by just trying to cheat on your taxes or trying to cheat yeah. on on your earnings or whatever. This market could be in trouble. Mm-hmm. I don't think that's the case though, because like I look at the Mona Lisa, you know, there's some art I look at where someone paid a million dollars for yeah. it sometimes, and I'm like, what the fuck were you doing? But I look at like the Mona Lisa. I look at name any famous art piece. That's worth something, mm-hmm. you know. It's like a human. It's a human thing that was created. So I see that still carrying over. But you could see through some of the bullshit that will be defined over time in the NFTs market, whether it be NBA Top Shot, yeah. whatever, whatever the bullshit is that the market defines become worth nothing because people realize well there was no utility here anyway because i can't even hide from shit and that's that's the only reason i wanted to get into it yeah i don't see that because like it's it's actually like i'm getting too far from the mic here um boy. it can't it's okay so think about like one of the first reasons people were bearish on bitcoin another thing i like to say paper hands diamond hands bullish bearish i'm getting into that again i get it Bearish versus bullish, I love it. So one of the reasons people were bearish on Bitcoin early on is like it's only the drug dealer's currency. Turns mm-hmm. out because because every single transaction is traceable, it's the worst thing to buy and sell drugs with because you can trace it back to people. Uh, I I actually don't want to comment on that because it, it's yes, but that that's getting above my pay grade on some things but yes and in, in the, the the theory you're presenting as mm-hmm. far as how it could affect this type of marketplace now that it's iterated to is not necessarily yeah. wrong so essentially like let's let's walk it back a little bit with it being so transparent the fact that they can somehow they must have some way of of tracking the transaction history in a way like that they can flag certain accounts for potentially money laundering that is something that you couldn't do in a cash market Mm. um at least in my and again i'm talking about my pay grade here by far but i think that that adds legitimacy to it 
because like in a trans if if the 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 assets you're trading are transparent they have a, a le- there's a, a higher likelihood that they the market is more legitimate would you agree with that yes okay so basically what i'm saying is the money going into top shot is money going into okay i value this because of the scarcity i value this because it's crypto i value this because it's an nft i value this because it's nba you have so many layers of legitimate value and yes there are bots yes there are people trying to flip yes there are probably people who are laundering money but they have made a lot of moves as a company to tramp that down as much as they can so the user base like the 205,000 people that were in line today for a pack i think about 200,000 of them are legitimately believers in this that will probably keep their at least something in top shot beyond this season can't say you're right or wrong i mean you may very well be right it's anytime there is something so new you there's all kinds of psychology that gets injected in mm-hmm. and you're going to start finding every if depending on which side of the coin you're on you're going to find every reason why it works or every reason why it doesn't a lot of times the answer ends up falling somewhere in the middle so you trim out the fat of things that are bullshit like i was referring mm-hmm. to a few minutes ago and, and you get to the things that are not but i think the timing of nba top shot is is very interesting and we keep on talking about the diamond hands and paper hands and everything i love but it we, we did see and i know you at least track this even though you're not in the markets we did see on january 28th the nuclear bomb go off where gamestop had been running mm-hmm. where it was the people of reddit mm-hmm. against the illuminati the the forbidden community of the hedge funds and yeah, wall street yeah. trying to short the stock the funny thing is is like I was like really in the weeds of Top Shot and like that not once appealed to me at all. So you were already in. And you but yeah. this this is what's interesting. The price action on Top Shot started going nuts, like nuts, like hockey stick nuts, as you said in the beginning of February. Mhm. Right? Well, the the price action on Top Shot really didn't take off until mid-February. Okay, even better. Mhm. January 28th was when the fiasco happened where Robin Hood suddenly didn't allow people to buy Rob- yeah, yeah. didn't allow people to buy GameStop mm-hmm. and a few of the other meme stocks and then all the backlash happened there and so that was a Thursday and we saw beginning on Monday the price of GME start to <laughs> fall off a cliff. Yeah. Now ironically as we talk right now it has actually started an uptrend again but who the mm-hmm. fuck knows it's and it's not up where it was it's like in the 100 110 handle something like that. But that movement was people versus institution. Mm-hmm. And it was also a very topish movement. Yeah. And what I mean by that is when you see retail investors coming into the marketplace, everyday people, right? Like people who aren't involved in markets could even be like brilliant people who are worth a lot of money but never do shit. And now suddenly they're throwing money like they're an expert at something. Mm-hmm. That's usually the time to sell. Right. Oh, yeah. So there were guys, I, there's two guys I can think of who are two of the smartest human beings I have ever met in my life. Mm-hmm. Brilliant. Who were so caught up in this and didn't give a fuck about GameStop. They were so caught up in the politics of it's us versus them, whatever, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. And I tried to talk them off a ledge of get the fuck out of it. I know how this ends. The game's already been rigged. Yeah, it's yeah, not yeah. going to end well for you. Get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. And they didn't. And, you know, we saw what happened. It's interesting to me. That Top Shot's action, and again, plenty of people who weren't NBA fans coming in, therefore maybe don't value the things happening in those moments as much. Top Shot's 
price action that exploded happened in February, largely, largely, after this occurred. Yeah. Because people were leaving the stock market pissed off. They were deleting their Robinhood accounts, mm-hmm. although Robinhood still kept a lot of accounts. Let's be clear on that. There's a lot of people say they're going to delete it, then they don't. But they weren't they, – they were pissed at it. They didn't like the system. They took their ball and they went home. But they're still at home. They're still in lockdown. They're yeah. still in corona. They still need something to do. They still need some action. So they run around and they go, holy shit, yeah. NBA top shot. That's the next thing to go. I don't, I, I, I don't think that the – I don't think that it's an A goes to B type of thing because I think like it's, it's hard to get into top shot. Like the barrier for entry now is hard to get into top shot. The, the time where like that type of person would have been able to get in pretty easily was while the game stopped. So they, they overlapped where like basically I had a choice. I guess I decided subconsciously that I wanted to I wanted to, to fuck some shit up. <laughs> I wanted I wanted to try my hand at this at this greed thing, at this markets thing, right? Greed. So for lack of a better word. Yeah. Is good. Yeah, whatever. Yeah. <laughs> um and so I for whatever reason, GameStop, I just didn't see any fundamental value there. Okay, I'm using another market term. Yeah, you're, you were for a guy that's not in the market. So yeah, you look at me. A lot of times. Um, I didn't see it there, right? I'm actually a pretty, I'm like very much into gaming. And GameStop mm. fucking sucks. You know what I mean? Like, I can see they ordered, they had a new CEO. The actual original, like, reason why they wanted to kind of like fuck up the short was new CEO and the new consoles coming out. Right? Mm. I get that. But otherwise, like, unless GameStop does something digital, like, they're done. You know yeah, not mean? according to deep fucking value. If you listen to him, he thinks they're going yeah. digital. Okay, well, that'd be great for them. And I, I think that's why you're seeing another surge is because there is a little bit of underlying. There's a, it's, it's not a bad bet, like, if you look at it that way. Eventually, if you look at it that way. Yeah. Um, but what I saw when that was happening, because I'm such a market expert, was that I was like, GameStop, like, like I just, it was like a carnival game. So not that, like, I had this, like, very, like, defined choice between the two it's just like i kind of ignored that and i was like oh this looks cool and like like i said i was like i I didn't see this as a get rich quick scheme i was like people are going to fucking love this you know what i mean like and people do and it's i I don't think it's very related to top shot at all it has that element where like if you want to go in there and fuck some shit up flip like find an edge and make some money you can do it, which is part of the the value of it in itself, is that you can play that stock market game if you want to. But it has so many other layers of value beneath that or because around that. Because they own something. Because they own something, because it's the NBA, because the NBA markets their players, because an actual moment in NBA history is pretty fucking cool. You know what I mean? Whereas like GameStop, GameStop's a shitty company. Yeah. You don't you don't hold it in your yeah, hands. So I kept asking, not that you hold this in your hands, but you you see something. I kept you know? asking myself, how will this fail? How will this fail? How will this fail? And I kept saying, like, the, they actually put out something like we got a lot of arrows in our quiver. And I was like, I was like, okay, they haven't marketed. They actually cut marketing. So like, I want to invest in a company that is has such high demand. They have to cut it off. So that's why I was so bullish. And um, and then like. I, I got really lucky, and I think that when I sold, honestly, will probably be the peak. I think everybody thinks that, but I, I do think that I hit this rare little... Um, so you do think it peaked, and when you're saying peaked, I haven't pulled up anything yet, but when you say it peaked, for now or long term? So I $65 million in sales in one day. I think that that is a... 
I think that is a peak that will be very hard to replicate because a lot of different things happened at the same time. You had all the big players. You had Gary Vee, Mark Cuban, Logan Paul, Barstool. They were all talking about it at the same time. Plus, people have their stimmies. You know what I You're mean? You're looking at in, at the at the daily sale, though. I'm talking about the value of the assets. Yeah, the daily sale, they, because they happen, right? They keep on putting these yeah, drops out. Yeah, yeah. They're going to keep doing that. I agree. Maybe the volume of initial adoption, mm-hmm. like that was the moment. I dumped right? 80 moments in less than an hour. I don't think that type of liquidity is ever going to happen again. And if I, I think it could because, like I said, the NBA just needs to run a commercial during the playoffs. How quick? That's a good question, though. How quickly did those sales go through? Like, like individually, you said less than I an see. hour to do eighty. So, like, did you have some that were sitting there for ten minutes and no. others went off in it a was second? Like, you ever see like piranhas in a tank? So it's you, like the stock market. Yeah, it was like, like yeah. it was like that. Now, if I, I have the moments I have, like the reason I didn't sell them is because they sat they sat overnight so mm. i was like people aren't onto these and i think they're they're just as valuable as the stuff i sold instantly so i'm gonna wait until there's another spike and and print some more money um but like that to me was like that's a very unique like because time is money of course like in the in the cardboard market and this is where my my friend alex who put some money in with me he he like hit that wave like really well and like made some good money in that but he had to put way more money in and just the pure time it takes to get these transactions, the eBay fees and everything is just like, he's like, this is just a, such a better version of what I did. And it took me way longer to do it than it's taking us. So like when I was like, dude, it's time to sell. He's like, let's do it. Like, I'm interested to see how fast it is. And I, I told him I was, I was going to dump almost everything at like 11 PM. Now, did you set prices on this or did you just hit enter and say, take market? I looked at my account value, which is based on the lowest ask. I looked at the lowest gas for a moment and I went a dollar under mm. and it just went. I think there were bots on the site that were just buying up everything. Sure. But I also think a lot of people, like real people bought my shit. Um, and I, I texted him an hour later. I said, 80 of them are gone. He said, what? He was like, <laughs> he's like, that's crazy. So like that is like, that's one of the reasons why this is a, a much better version of something that's worked really well already, which is the cardboard market. And the cardboard market was heating up for a while mm-hmm. i mean that was heating up for in my estimation roughly what it felt like to me about two years or so and gary v was hard on that and there were some people who and then you saw some of the athletes that actually get into it and it's been huge during corona mm-hmm. i had luke servino in here who is uh kendrick perkins personal manager and business partner in mm-hmm. in the in a card partnership so they've been buying cards for a long long time yeah. long before corona the whole nine mm-hmm. and it's interesting that people have put such a tangible value on those physical objects again now, and they've created... It's literally cardboard. It's literally cardboard, <laughs> right? But it's the Gemmin 10 or, you know, this... It's the scarcity thing you talked about yeah. earlier. This is just an iteration of it that's more transparent, more easier, can move faster because it's all digital. Mm-hmm. Boom. Second. It's completely authenticated already, whereas yeah. like with the cardboard market... You know, even Kendrick and Luke, they got to send out all their stuff to PSA. Which is subjective. Which is totally subjective. You can, you can say whatever the fuck you want about it. It's subjective. It's and and I shouldn't say totally subjective. There are there is some objectivity yeah, to it. Yeah, they in definitely the have that, some object like um, operational definitions of sure. like yeah. But it's like you see what PSA does. It's unbelievable. Like how fast they turn this stuff mm-hmm. around and and how they move it. But 
they're doing it in a human world in a physical world where they yeah. gotta you know look at it and stuff so it makes sense that you're gonna have an iteration now where that's just done yeah they were know? trying actually top shot kind of killed this i think it's star stock star stock correct is yeah. tr trying to like centralize the cardboard market to make it more efficient make it faster kind of like put your cell your psa grading everything all in one spot yep top shot is doing that way better than that could ever dream but t okay so here's another question top shots creating moments they're creating videos mm -hmm. creating you know it's the word is not interactive so they're, i think another another interesting thing is top shots not creating the moments the nba players are creating the moments right 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 but they're taking it and packaging yes, it they're creating yes. the products that are the mm -hmm. moments but yes good point whereas Starstock is relying on the physical picture Mm -hmm. It's it is two different ideas. I'm not saying one is better than the other. I mean, I think both will exist. Okay. In in concert with one another, I just think that for me, I feel like ah man, I missed out on the cardboard market. Not that I was ever on it. Never would be on it. I was hoping that I'd have like a hollow Charizard sitting in my uh, sitting in my uh, closet back home. Not the case. But um, let alone one that would be like not have like the ear chewed off of it or whatever the corner. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, like. I just think, I think both, I don't think the car, the cardboard market's going anywhere. I don't think the cardboard market's going anywhere. And I don't think Top Shot's going anywhere. Because um, they are two different things to a certain degree. But It's, this whole thing is, this is the kind of stuff I love to study with human behavior a lot. You know, because mm -hmm. I, I cut my teeth working in the markets. And yeah. you see the, be you see the worst of people. And sometimes you see the best of people. But you see the worst of people mm -hmm. in markets in both directions, depending on where their bets lie. Mm -hmm. And there's a guy who I've I used to get his newsletter called the Daily Dirt Nap. This guy, Jared Dillian, who's brilliant, and his he was one of the greatest traders at Lehman Brothers when Lehman mm -hmm. Brothers was a firm, and the traders had nothing to do with what happened as to why Lehman Brothers failed. But mm -hmm. after Lehman Brothers crash, he left Wall Street as far as like working at the institutions. Wrote this newsletter he had already been writing while on Wall Street, and is an investor and, and a very very brilliant guy. And is known as a he is a he is a genius behavioral finance reader or whatever. So he studies what people are doing in the macro to determine what the micro is, in, which in his case is what is the price of the stock market and the value. Yeah. So one of my favorite theories that he had, and he had many, but one of my favorite ones, New York City guy. So he he had this theory called the seafood tower theory, mm -hmm. which is. When you start walking into restaurants in New York City and you see seafood towers all over tables, sell your fucking wife and kids. Sell everything. Because seafood towers are, if people aren't familiar with them, it's like, it's exactly what it sounds like. It's this four-layer tower of seafood with different fish and crab and all that bullshit, like on each level. And you pay hundreds of dollars, in some places thousands of dollars for it. And yes, it's a lot of seafood, but if you just went and bought that same seafood somewhere and took it home and cooked it, you know, it might cost a hundred bucks. Yeah. People buy it for the view and the allure. It's and a, it's a sign of inflation. Correct. Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah, yeah. Like like um well it's a sign of wealth, right? Okay. It's a sign of like, oh, we're having fun. It's a tower, you know, all all the bitches put it on yeah. Instagram and stuff now, all that stuff. So Bitches as a as a light term there, not a not, not a direct term. You got to make sure that people understand the context there. But you get the point, like the basic bitch kind of thing. So he said, whenever he would see the seafood towers, that's when he knew people were complacent. They were gluttonous. They get out. Yeah. 
one of the basic theories that he didn't invent, it's just been around, is the taxi driver theory, mm -hmm. which says the same thing, which is when you get into a taxi, and now people could say an Uber, and you know the Uber driver is suddenly giving you stock picks, sell everything. Yeah. Because that means the retail money's gotten to the marketplace. Mm -hmm. Some if, people may look at me as a taxi driver. Sure, mm -hmm. sure. But this is my point. I never, ever want to say the words new normal. Those are the words you say before you lose everything and before you're very, very wrong. So I'm not going to say that. Well, you just said it. What we No, no. You said it. I said it. I have to point out the term. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> what we do need to look at, though, here is why have we not seen major league economic sell-offs? And a lot of people are going to say right away, the Fed's been pumping in money and creating a fake economy and the dollar's not worth anything. Fine. Assume that that's not completely true, though. We've seen the stock market go like this. Mm -hmm. We've seen all these other hot markets while people are sitting at home bored just fucking hockey stick and go to the roof, go through the roof. And we haven't seen the sell-offs. Because i, I got to be honest with you, back last April... April and May especially, when after Corona started and all the retail bros, this pre-GameStop, were going to Robinhood and, and suddenly becoming day traders with Davey Day Trader, which, mm -hmm. you know, that was the funniest shit I've ever seen. Dave yeah. Portnoy is hilarious. When they were all doing that, I looked at that and I said, taxi driver. I said, oh my God, like, yeah. is, is this going to crash? Mm -hmm. And it didn't at all. Because people needed action. It was a, it was a different world. We had never had yeah. people all at home doing something. Mm -hmm. So, Jared Dillian has been flashing the alarm bells on all markets since the beginning of January. Mm -hmm. like, and he's putting his actions behind it too. He liquidated his entire retirement account. Mm -hmm. And he's been tweeting about it, whatever. And it's, it's scary to me because his track record is excellent and i try to look forward and not backwards to judge mm -hmm. who's going to be right and wrong but there's the difference here that i see that we need to talk about is that you're seeing it in more individual places than anything and so specifically when you saw the explosion in gamestop where was the explosion it was in gamestop it was in amc and a few other stocks was that necessarily an apple no apple had been going up for a long time those weren't the people buying apple Yet there's people like Jared who want to say, well, that's the bubble. Everyone's running the stock market, sell everything and allow that mentality to affect what's happening with Apple or something. Mm -hmm. Then when you look at something like NBA Top Shot, those same people, the Jareds of the world, he hasn't commented on that, I don't think. But as an example, they see things like that and they see irrational exuberance. They see people like you who aren't NBA fans running to the markets and openly saying, look – not an NBA fan, and I was looking to make money, diamond hands, whatever, and they go, oh my God, taxi drivers yeah. going in the market. Mm -hmm. So do you see some of this stuff? Like you keep on talking about it's here to stay. Do you see some things right now that even as a not markets guy, you're saying to yourself, there are definitely some actions driving prices in some of these new markets, whether it be NBA top shots, NFTs as a whole, even parts of the stock market where it's like, there has to be some kind of ending here where things get reset and it's not good. Yeah, I. So there's a lot to unpack there. Obviously, a lot, yeah. Um, if you don't think that these kind of like I don't know what to call them, these GameStop stocks, Top Shot, anything that doesn't have like big time fundamental value, like Apple, they're gonna take a hit once people can take that money that they have and put it into real life experiences. Mm. People are funneling money into digital things, whether it's a stock, whether it's a digital moment, because there's no real life 
thing to buy right now. I mean, you can eat outside, but you can't really go on vacation. I mean, all that stuff is starting to happen. And also, not only that, it's winter, right? Yeah. So I, I've, I have a theory. This is probably something that you can answer easily. The stock market probably does better in the winter. Uh, you know what? I actually don't have a answer to that. That'd be an interesting thing to look at. I, I, I think never that, looked at that. Yeah, you could probably like. I know months. I know like September and October can be historically bad months. You know, mm-hmm. but I'm not really sure on that. We'll check yeah. that after. But so people are going to start going outside. People are going to start buying real life things. Um, it's going to take a hit, but it's not going to like crash our economy. I don't think. But I think like. I think at the same time, like, these people are going to get out, cash out, like, who's left? You know what I mean? Whoever's left is going to lose in yeah. these in these things. But I think, like, what rebounds will actually have long-term value. I think Top Shot is one of those things. Um, yeah, I don't know. that That's interesting to me. But my my window, because I set – like, I was a very responsible investor. I set some goals. I – uh I had a timeline in mind. Some like, people would say that's not diamond hands, Nick. Um, yeah, but I don't know. I don't know what you want me to say. <laughs> <laughs> I actually don't believe in that. I think it's, it's pretty fucking stupid, honestly. I think a lot of people lost a lot of money. How dare you? Because they got caught up in a meme. <laughs> I like saying it because it's funny. Um, <laughs> but my my goal was like, I'm gonna I'm gonna ride this out for the rest of the season because I think that's a pretty good timeline. I want to see what what happens to this when NBA starts advertising it. I, I thought that the the big hockey stick that I saw was going to come. I didn't think it was going to happen in February. I thought it was going to happen like during the playoffs because mm. I could just see all these awesome... But like all those people that I thought were going to talk about it during the playoffs started talking about it like a week ago. So because like that happened, I was... I like kind of did the math. Not the math, but I did the... My, my, gut, my gut told me, it was a gut feeling that it was time to sell. I'm still really glad I did. Um, I'm sure there will be at least one surge. I'm like, eh, maybe I should have held a couple of those, but I still have five. Um, yeah, man, I, I think it's going to rebound. I think everything's going to, like, the summer, you're you're not going to see people, like, to the extent that they are now buying sure. and selling stocks. Especially if day we, trading. knock on wood, reopen the fuck out of this country, you know? Yeah. It's going to be a party. People are going to be out doing things, which makes all of it. It's not just Top Shot. Like we're picking on Top Shot with that example. It's mm-hmm. it's everything. Mm-hmm. You know, people are going to be out buying tangible things again. Mm-hmm. They're not going to be sitting there like, oh, let's check my accounts like 50 million times a day. Yeah. Life starts to happen. But the thing is, is like for every, let's say out of the, how many accounts there are? There's over 200,000 accounts now. When I got in, there were 12,000. Mm. So there's over 200,000 accounts now. Let's say- at least 80% of those are legitimate, not duplicate accounts. I think they can track that and police that pretty well. Um, the NBA market is in way bigger than 200,000. Absolutely. Way yeah. big. It's global. And um, so let's say half of that 200,000 are people like me who aren't really in it for the actual like collectible, like I like these moments for these moments. Let's say more than half that. Like they're going to be able to replace the people that leave in the summer with just as many, if not like way more than that. And yeah. Do you, do you know anything about restrictions? And I'm thinking of one country in China. And the reason I ask that is because China restricts all of our main social platforms there. They restrict Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. They don't let that shit happen. And the Chinese marketplace is the largest global marketplace for the NBA in particular. Have you heard anything around what they're allowing and what they're not? I don't know anything about that. I think, I mean, if. China allows the NBA, 
why wouldn't they allow things licensed by the NBA? They allow the NBA because the NBA is content and they make money off of it. Where they start to allow free markets for their citizens to profit is where they start to get real that. sketch. I know on that, that I got a, a Tyrese Halliburton eight eight eight, and I was like, I know eight is a lucky number in like the Asian culture. I was like pretty pumped about it. I ended up selling it and like doing other stuff with that money. But I mean, I I don't know. Like I I yeah. know nothing about that. Yeah, I, I haven't heard a peep on that. But like I, how let's, it relates like, globally. The NBA market within the United States is much larger than two hundred thousand. Oh sure, yeah. 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 So that's enough for me. And that, like I said, I'm 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 gonna play around with this. Uh, again, I might I, I might try to find a quick little edge here and and maybe. But I mean, I got I have a BMW sitting in my dapper wallet. Like that's good enough for me. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, and this is the other question that has to get asked though, because I agree with you, and I've been an NBA fan my entire life, and it's it's a huge game, and the marketability of the players especially relative to the NFL, it's apples and oranges. In the NFL, they're covered by a face mask. Mm -hmm. And there's also 22 of them on the field at a time. Yeah. And 53 on a roster. Against... So there's there's a scarcity game there. Correct. Whereas in the NBA, you can see their faces. Cameras are up close. There's only 10 on the court at a time, and there's 12 on each roster. Mm -hmm. So the exactly the scarcity that you have with that creates more market marketability you know if you're a tom brady like a quarterback like the face and symbol of the team yes you can make a fuck ton of money but also globally basketball is a bigger game than football is globally it's largely an american sport mm -hmm. so like football is so i get it with how you can actually get this off the court and stuff but the question that does have to be brought up here is that even when people had all this time on their hands during Corona and all this, when the NBA season came back, and I know their numbers are better this season so far, they're still not where they were, though. People did not love the bubble. That's what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the most, the craziest thing to me is that game six of the NBA finals with the best player of this generation playing in the game. Yeah. Had like 300,000 viewers. I didn't know that. While yeah. fucking CNN and Fox had 10 million that night. Yeah. And so it's interesting that while that's happening, the forget Top Shot. This is before that, largely. The, the card market, the cardboard market of these players, even though no one's fucking watching or cares, mm -hmm. is blowing up. Yeah. So who's in that is it just so many people are bored and then what is the long-term viability of sports here and i think we all love sports i think it's going to be fine i just like to bring up the question because when people had nothing but time you know they were still yeah i guess they, they the, didn't watch it the argument you're making is that for me to assume that NBA fans will also be into this might be misplaced in that the NBA I can't assume that the NBA fan will also be into NBA collectibles. I don't even think that's that misplaced though. I I would think are all of them going to be into it? Absolutely not. Mm -hmm. no, there's no such thing as all in any marketplace, yeah. right? But do I think a, a nice percentage, whatever that is, let's call it enough, yeah. are going to be into it? But the argument yeah, you're making could. almost makes me be more bullish on this because even though the NBA was doing bad, the collectible market around the NBA was right. doing well. I think that's always you're always going to have people trying to take advantage of the market. So the the only thing that happens is you get more liquidity as the NBA popularity increases back to its level that it was before, and you'll still have those people trying to because essentially like 
you're you're basically passing off value down to the lower levels or taking value from the lower levels. If there's more people playing around at the lower levels, the casual NBA fan buying and selling the $50 moments, whatever they are, that's good for the overall market of it. Here's where I'm probably talking out of my ass, but I don't know if that makes any sense. No, I I, I think it does. I think the way to look at this marketplace, and again, not just Top Shot, but look at the current round of NFTs that are being created, whether it be Genies dropping the Mehmet Ozul, the soccer player, mm -hmm. I think that's how you say his name, that sold... I don't know what the total number was, but maybe there were a hundred yeah. of them. Or I have a an thousand. uncle Mehmet, by the way. Oh, yeah. well, there you go. Is he is Ozul? Is he Turkish? Yeah, Turkish. Yeah. Exactly. Garal is Turkish. Fun fact for that. Really? I thought you were Mexican. Uh, my grandma's Mexican. My grandpa's Turkish. Got Dun it. Dundar Garal. What a Turkish. combo! Yeah, that's an unbelievable combo. But anyway, like you see stuff like that get sold. You see stuff like Logan Paul selling a digital version of himself on a digital card. Get mm -hmm. the, Genies, that. by the way, is going to be massive. Genies is. The, yeah, I'm not really sure what. That's going to be Fortnite skins. I'm trying to think. Because I also wanted to circle back to Fortnite skins. Fortnite skins accidentally made NFTs. It's just not yeah, backed by no, the blockchain. No, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, I want to be careful what I say. I'm thinking of a couple guys I know um, and some some stuff they have around that. So I, I don't want to get into that, but I, let's just I don't say know anything I, about Genies. I just see it. I see what it let's is. Let's say I agree. Yeah. It's gonna be big yeah yeah i mean it it already is and that's dapper labs yeah exactly and they but that offshoot of what they do they were doing other before we saw like mamet ozul and all that they were doing let's call it first generation type stuff mm -hmm. they were they were dripping out little things that made weren't even nfts just to kind of give people a taste of what their capabilities were and now they're actually dripping out nfts and they're creating these avatars the nfts my point is the nfts that we are seeing right now are at base level mm -hmm. so i think a lot about the my, my friend anthony was on this podcast and his company soar they build holograms they build 3D representations, both yeah. VR and AR. Mm -hmm. They have the number one compression algorithm there is, right? Yeah. There's no one in the Pied world. Pied Piper. They are, that's the running joke, but they are effectively Pied Piper, but it works, yeah. right? And Pied Piper, for people who don't know, it's the company in the show Silicon Valley on HBO, yeah. which that was their company. That allows them to build these experiences. Mm -hmm. What do you think they can do with that, with NFTs? I don't even have to ask them, but... The types of experiences that they can create to allow mm -hmm. drops of things with mm -hmm. his technology versus what's being put out there right now, even by genies and other companies like that, is it's absurd. I mean, I, I thought of one the other night and I'm like, imagine if you had who's name like three music artists you love. Taylor Swift. That's one. We know Come that on. one. You're a big Taylor guy. No. You ruined the song Feeling 22 for all of us. I know, I know. I've grown I've grown since then. Yeah. Uh, I like Machine Gun Kelly's new album. Okay, let's go with Machine Gun Kelly. Uh-huh. So Machine Gun Kelly, let's say that there's two songs he's never released before and, yeah. and then won't. And there's two songs that he's never performed before. Yeah. And then six other songs that he's performed, released, whatever yeah. the people know. That's a 10-song set. Let's say Machine Gun Kelly performs a concert yeah. in his fucking bathroom mm -hmm. 
And someone like Anthony could go out there and make that a 3D experience and put that into an yeah. NFT. This is something like I got to ask him about it, but I don't think that's beyond the pale. I mean, that's something he's concert, capable of doing. The concert ticket is the NFT. No, there's no one seeing it. He would capture that concert, uh-huh. have it in 3D, yeah, and then have that as maybe a 10 concert drop, and okay. put it on the marketplace where there is. 10 of Machine Gun Kelly, who you can stand up life-size right here in the middle of your party, mm-hmm. in a hologram form, oh, okay. playing the concert, and you own one of 10. And by the way, there's- I can sell tickets. Not, no, not even tickets. You own the asset. So if you, have, if you have 100 people over for a party, Machine Gun Kelly's playing a concert no one else has heard right there. Yeah, but if I wanted to charge those 100 people, I could. Oh, fuck yeah. I guess yeah. you can. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. So you don't think on the open market- there are enough Machine Gun Kelly fans out there who are going to be like, or just people who understand assets and are going, oh my God, I can own a visual, literal repre- 3D representation of Machine yeah. Gun Kelly doing this thing he did that no one ever saw and mm-hmm. with these songs no one's ever heard. People are going to want that. Yeah. That's how, and that's just one layer of where NFTs can go to. Yeah. I think that's, yeah, that's big. I could, I could, I could see that being a big deal. I, it's hard for me to wrap my brain around that. You're getting into like the little bit of metaverse, but this company, this company is putting it in the real world. I get, I, I, I can see where digital assets becoming it are like being able to be a little bit more tangible in the real world. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal. I, I guess I would need to understand the technology a little bit more, but just tossing up a hologram, like what, what digital technology what i need in my home to oh that's a whole separate question because yeah. that's that's part of the adoption process that's why we don't have I think holograms that, in i homes think that's right where now. you run into issues well it's like any other piece of technology mm-hmm. first of all behind the scenes they all have technology that exists right now that we don't have yet and we won't have for five to ten years in some cases mm-hmm. most cases maybe it's like a two three year turnaround so think of it this way and this is a bad example because this was not the case but let's say Apple had the iPhone in 2001. They really didn't. They were actually building the tablet. They were building the iPad first. Mm-hmm. And then they realized, let's make the phone first while they were building that. So it's not really the case, but let's say they did. And they had the iPhone in 2001. To sell the necessary items, including the iPhone itself in 2001, would have cost, you'd, you're buying a car. Mm-hmm. You know, for the same thing that 10 years later is $20 off. You know, $20 sale on on a street vendor because it's the third three versions ago, right? To get to that marketplace, they had to do it over time to where they could get the production cost down. Mm -hmm. That's all holograms are in right now. So the people who buy it, by the way, who are buying something like that example, like a Machine Gun Kelly thing, first of all, they're rich as fuck. So any equipment they need, they can get. Yeah. And secondly, the barrier to entry of that equipment will go down over time so more people can get it. But the rare ones like that, the people that get that barrier to entry down and can now enter, they're still never going to be able to buy that anyway. It's a rarefied market. Mm-hmm. It's like oh, it's like the people who own art pieces. We talked about having the digital frames earlier, right? That's 2D. Now imagine instead of it, like we talk about the decor, when people come in here and it's a part of the ambiance and you want to say, yeah. ooh, look what I own. Well, now imagine you have something 3D and the motherfucker's mm-hmm. standing there with you. And, he's, and in that case, rapping. Yeah, I don't... It's just tough because I, I think like you could test that out by just having a moment, like a Machine Gun Kelly moment that you can put on your TV as a concert for a party of a hundred. That could work if that yeah, doesn't in the work. 2D world, yeah. If, if that doesn't work, 
it's going to be tough for the hologram to catch on because there's just so many more steps to make that work in your home. I think it's likelier that a concert venue buys it and makes a concert out of an NFT machine gun Kelly hologram. Well, no doubt on that. And Which, I, I also agree with you entirely. This is not what I just said is not necessarily minus the very rarefied ones like the machine gun Kelly could mm-hmm. be a part of that example. That's going to take a while to get to where the every man integrates it in their life. You know, same yeah. way that the iPhone couldn't happen overnight, right? Mm-hmm. Actually more so because there's more moving pieces involved. But in in concept right now, in theory, because people are buying out, right? Like they're buying, we talked about they're buying these moments. Maybe there's not a lot of digital frames right now, but they're betting that they're going to be. Mm-hmm. So they're buying five years out when that's going to be a thing. See, I don't, I don't think... I don't think people are buying them. I think having it on your phone is enough. It's enough for Gen Z. Having Why it on do you your say f- that? I don't think that the the um, the utility of NBA Top Shot is the moment can one day be on my wall in a cool digital frame. I think that it's the fact that it exists online, that's enough. That's enough to be able to, to show it in a social media platform. When I texted yeah. you that Giannis moment... One of the coolest things about these moments is that when I text it to you, it plays in iMessage. Yep. It looks cool in iMessage. It does. That's enough. That's and enough. And it's, it's like Instagram. It's the same thing. People go to their Instagram page. How good does yours look? Now, everyone had, that's an open access tool. Everyone has access to it. Mm-hmm. But we can agree that people who are influencers who have a lot of money and professionally pay for things to be curated correctly and all that, they have extra features that the average person can't get access to. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think there is the same level here. The question then becomes how much do people value the what the look is there? Because it's a to go back to the original article that he wrote, the the what was his name again? The blogger Bales, who wrote that? Jonathan Bales, Bales. Jonathan Bales. To go back to that original article, it's a YouTube video with a frame and a stamp around it that says we're partners with the NBA. Mm-hmm. And it, I'll give them a little more credit. They have the, – it's designed with very nice angles and whatever that aren't and, necessarily – scarcity. Yes. There's some scarcity there to that. But it's still a video of a play you can go see in HD, 1080p. And if you mm-hmm. if you got the right equipment, you can go see it in 4K. You know, so is that enough? Is that – are is it going to follow that theory you're talking about where Gen Z is like, oh, look at me. I have this one on my phone where the other Gen Z kid's going to say, well, look at me. I have it on my phone too. It's on YouTube and maybe I don't own it, but fuck it. I can still watch it. I think there's enough. I think there's enough legitimacy to it already that it's only so the, the value of the, the moments is only as valuable as the people willing to buy them. Mm. And and. I think like if I say, well, I paid this much for it, I can not, I paid this much for it, but I can sell it for this much. As long as that remains a thing, I'm going to, I'm going to put my moment that I can sell for thousands of dollars up against your YouTube video you got for free. Like it has value just like anything else that has money, like art, like a trading card. Like it's valuable because I know that someone will pay this amount for it. And that was kind of like my thesis, like early on when I was like buying, like, I didn't really buy a lot of the rare stuff because like I kind of subconsciously was thinking about things the same way you were is like when Barstool gets a hold of this is kind of like where I was going. Like sure. when the Barstool bros get a hold of this, they're going to have around 500 to $2,000 to burn in this marketplace. 
What is the best stuff that they can buy for five hundred to two thousand dollars? And I just bought all of it. I got I looked and so I don't know anything about the NBA. Here's another thing I did. So I used Vegas odds. Um I used the Vegas odds for MVP and I saw that LeBron was the favorite and th- in second place was Joel Embiid and in third place was Jokic. Obviously LeBron was priced with that in mind. It was priced appropriately. Um Joel Embiid and Jokic were not priced appropri- appropriately the based outliers. on the M- NBA uh, mm. um on the NBA MVP odds. So I bought a lot of them. Um because I was so early, I was able to buy like the top 10. <laughs> I was able to buy the top 10 for like under 2 grand. Um so like what was the best Embiid play? It was just his first play cuz that's another thing is like his first play is going to get a badge. That, that says it was his first play on NBA Top Shot, which is, it was a, an assist between his legs. You should look it up. Oh, so not his first play of his career, just no, the no, first no, play his, they created. So there's a couple different Got badges that will Got exist it. in late March, early April. That's a nice little tip for the listeners. Mm-hmm. Um, if you can figure out uh, what a, a player's first play on Top Shot is, it'll get a badge. If it's a play from their first rookie game, um, it'll get a badge if it's um, if it's their first play as an NBA player, their rook, their first rookie moment. So like Lamelo Ball has this shitty assist. It is like a lollipop assist to some random dude. He takes a full. St- it's barely an assist. I don't even know what an assist is in basketball. Like I don't fully understand it. I know it's a pass, and then someone scores. This is barely that. It is going for over three thousand dollars because it's his first assist in the NBA. Um, and so that's going to get a badge. So like if you can figure out those types of things, like that's where the edge is right now. That takes some work because it's not apparent. Um, and also the price of that type of thing is already kind of baked in because people know it's coming. But if you want to take advantage from the, the to if you want to take advantage of the users that are coming in in the future, those are the types of angles you need to take right now. Now, in the cardboard, like the physical card market, mm-hmm. one of the things that moves prices like crazy is the actual games night to night. Mm -hmm. So if Curry goes off for 60 points tonight, Mm -hmm. all of the values of his cards, I don't have a percentage for you. It's different for every person based on the situation, but it goes up. You know, maybe it goes up 10% overnight. And then people can delta that sale. Whereas if he has five points on Mm -hmm. one of 13 shooting, it goes down. Yeah. Is Top Shot the same? This is why Top Shot's better. There's not friction. Here's another market term. Is it a market term? I don't know. Friction. I believe it is. So there's way more friction in the cardboard market because Curry, Curry's not a good example because he's going to hold his value way more than, let's say, let's say Jalen Brown, right? Okay. Again, I don't know a whole lot about the NBA, but I, I know enough to know that Jalen Brown is young, mm-hmm. promising NBA player. Very good player. Um, he, he, he has a 60-point game. His, his, his stuff will skyrocket. Okay, mm. because he's never had a sixty-point game before, has he? No. Okay, not a lot of people have. Um, <laughs> not a lot. No. So that you can take advantage of that in the cardboard market, even with the friction, because it's it's kind of a signal that his career is kind of going to another level, right? You you can't take advantage of a sixty-point game from Steph Curry because if I'm not explaining this well. So Jay, let me let me rewind it a little bit. All right, let's do it. So Jalen Brown has that 60-point game, okay? He's a little bit more of a volatile player because we're not quite sure what tier of NBA star sure. he is. 
So he has that 60-point play. I have his cardboard card. I want to move it because his, his value skyrocketed. In the process of whatever, getting it graded, mailing it out, putting it on eBay, the auction process, he can have a 40-point game. Or not, sorry. He can have like a zero-point game, like completely flop in a, in a marquee matchup. All the sales are pulled off. Unless that. you already had all that done. But that's the thing. Doing all that takes time. Yeah, but I'm saying, like, if you had it done before that 60-point game and you own it, you can go sell it on the open market. Yeah, so my my partner, he he's had situations like that okay. where, like, the sale is it's stuck in, like, a little bit of, like, purgatory, mm. and it, it gets pulled. Like, the, the, the buyer backs out. Yes, yes. In that there's, that, there's a window of time for the buyer to back out in the cardboard market because of the friction of the cardboard market. There is not that friction in the top shot moment because i told you i sold 80 moments in under an hour instantaneous yeah yeah so if there was that friction it would be really hard for me to sell at the peak of that sales kind of spike that i saw um which i think is like a, a reason why what you're saying is it's just a better version of that like i can play daily fantasy sports with my moments by buying and selling them a little bit because i can say okay um let's say the pelicans are going into this stretch I think Zion is going to absolutely crush every single game because he matches up well with these three teams. I'm going to buy up a bunch of Zion, let these three games play out, and then sell because he just had, he just averaged over 40 points. Got it. So like that's that's where the edge is now, okay. And if I was an NBA fan, I'd be all over that. That's where I would be. I would just be churning that out and just printing money because if you can find an edge, like if you're good at daily fantasy sports for NBA and you can see those stretches where a player is going to just crush it. You can buy before the stretch and sell after the stretch. Mm. Um, whereas, like, you can't really do that as well in the cardboard market. You can, but you, it's it's harder um, because of the friction. And that's if this comes to the NFL, like, I will be all in on that. So the the instantaneous transactability is allowing for certain people mm-hmm. to go in and quote unquote print money right mm-hmm. now, just because the market's growing. And 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 I get that. Therefore, there's less. To go back to the friction term, there it's it's just time. It's 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 a it's a standard of time, and then the bullshit that comes mm-hmm. because th- that causes that time to yeah. happen. The best the, the best sellers in that. the cardboard market have all their cards graded. They yep. they have a nice little pipeline to a and they sell it right online right yeah, away. Yeah, Bang. But done. even then, there's still a window there. Like my buddy, he's really good with all that, and he still has a window of time where the buyer can back out if something happens to that. That's card. interesting. I know less about that. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, so there there could be a problem no matter what precautions you take against it. Mm-hmm. But it's not just it's 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 not it's not just the the fans printing money here. It is Dapper Labs and we keep on talking about that. So, with Dapper Labs, you had mentioned there's they get like a 5% tax or a 5% rake or something like that. I mm-hmm. I forget what it was in the secondary market. So, can you just explain what ex- how exactly that works? Yeah, so Dapper Labs, um, when you buy something on Top Shot, um, as the buyer, I don't, I don't, none of, none of, like, I don't get have an extra five percent taken from like my Dapper balance, which is what you buy stuff with. And Dapper balance is in USD. Um, you can load it with crypto. You can load it with your credit card, which is another thing. Is like they're kind of onboarding people into the NFT space mm. without needing crypto, which I think is kind of a newer thing. And that is one of the appeals of the Flow protocol is that yeah. it's scalable to a degree that allows they can they can kind of they're okay with people using credit card to get in um because they can scale to that level um so anyway so when i buy a moment i don't see any of that marketplace fee 
But when I sell the moments, it's 5%, which... Um, that's a big rake. That's a big rake. I, I mean, it, I think it's smaller than an eBay would if you were selling a card on eBay. I think it's mm. it's either comparable or, or less than that. Um, I think when you compare it to really anything, it's 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 not that big. Um, I'm trying to think of like what the rake would be. The rake in daily fantasy sports is probably right around five percent. Um, the rake in depends betting, what you're comparing it to. Yeah, I just think like there's a marketplace fee. It made sense to me. Five percent seemed like a decent number. It kind of sucked when I'm selling like the real expensive stuff. So I sold a Luka Doncic assists that was part of a challenge, which the challenge is a whole game within the game. Um, I sold that for like close to seven grand and 5% of that was, I was like, dang, like <laughs> that's a lot. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it's not that, not that big of a deal. Still, I, I think I, I beat the, I beat the rake by <laughs> a substantial amount. So, so, so Dapper is, is incentivized by volume and or price. So let's say the higher the prices are, the bigger the rake they get. So you'd think mm -hmm. they'd want them up. But if they get prices so high that everyone just holds it and there's no sales happening, they don't really make money. Mm -hmm. So they need volume to happen. Whereas let's say prices go through the floor and people are just buying and selling like crazy and it's a whole different kind of marketplace, different actors, different everything because the vibe is different. Well, they're making a rake every time. So maybe where it takes 100 trades to make what would have been one trade a week ago. Well, if they have 200 trades happening for every where every one trade did, they're doing better in the lower vol market. It could kind of go either way, depending yeah. on how many players there are in the marketplace participating. They set they set themselves up pretty nicely with this. It's it's pretty good. It's it's pretty amazing how fast. Very I, Dapper that. Labs is really really sharp. Um, and what was the original part of their company? They were like Crypto Kitties or something. Crypto Kitties, yeah. So and how did that work? Uh, crypto Kitties was basically the Crypto Kitty was. I think it was a non-fungible token. Yeah. Believe so, yeah. So it's basically you buy a cat. It's a virtual pet. You can you can I think the biggest thing with that with that was cool. I I never got in, but I have a buddy that was. Um you can get two cats and breed them and make another cat that is like you breed crypto kitties, right? Um which Come is on. essentially like that sounds really like really fucking weird come but, on but it's the same thing as like combining so like if i have three common cards i can sell them right for three grand or whatever and then use that three grand to buy a rarer card so if you have two cheap crypto kitties and you put them together and you make a new one i think the two cheaper ones go away and you just have a more expensive version of the two that has the characteristics of the two but everything with with non-fungible tokens is still individual there's one of it that's mm -hmm. it like e even with the moments in nba top shot mm -hmm. where they drop 250 at one moment it's yeah. still number one number two number three so you own the individual thing and like i joke my i was trying to explain to my mom how nfts work and like what they are and i'm like just think of it this way they're not fuckable to tokens mm -hmm. because you can't fuck with it like once you own that one that's it like yeah. that's the thing and you know whether it be they start with the crypto kitties and create the iterations of it where you can kind of combine and, and move around yeah there's still the the underlying asset that you own you know no one else does the question is how does the rest of the marketplace who doesn't own that value it mm -hmm. that's pretty i mean at the end of the day it's it, it it really isn't different than any other market it's just like anything else it's the behavior and the actors and the products within the market are mm -hmm. what determine 
how it works and then comes back to supply and demand. Yeah. I think like where this is going is it's all about like, will someone buy this for X amount of dollars? I think that the NBA markets its players in a way. Um, Top Shot is kind of setting up the game in a way where a Steph Curry three-pointer is always going to be worth a few hundred bucks on this site. It's never going to go away. Right now, it's worth a few thousand, and I think it'll probably stay there, Series 1. But what will go away is right now, like, Sam Merrill. Do you know who Sam Merrill is? Not a fucking. There's kid. a hard O basketball player who's like fist pumping right now, like Sam. Like he's he's like a he's like a white point guard, I guess, who just has like pretty pretty nice three point shot. But I mean, he's who does he play for? He's a rookie. I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. Sam, how do you spell his last name? M E R I L L. Merrill. Yeah. Sam Merrill. So what's the story with him? So right now he's a series two rookie, and um, four hundred four thousand of his moments exist on the site. I. If you if you can find his his moment, based on scarcity alone, the fact that he's a rookie, he's gonna get this badge. Like, let me just guess, he's probably going for a few hundred bucks, probably four fifty. But what what the fuck is he worth? That's the question. That's the thing. This that's is the shit that's that where like, like that's that. I have it up behind you. Yeah. Yeah. How much? Uh, let's see. I called four fifty. Oh, I got twelve thousand. I got it. Where do I click again? Top sale. Two more. No. Sales history, top sale. That's the top sale. 33 bucks? If you look for the lowest ask, it, it being out of 12000 kind of throws off the little equation. But All anyway, right. even yeah, $33 is too much too much for Sam Merrill. Yeah, I don't know who the fuck this guy is. Yeah, so that type of player, he's not going to hold value long term when people have money to like do other things. When people have money and can do other things with it, Sam Merrill is not going not gonna to hold that value. But I think I think the stars will. So I think like that. That's kind of like where this is going. And, now, you and, own ninety though, at I, your peak. You yeah, said, I, think, I own right? ninety, and I uh, probably at least forty percent of those were just randos. That like, okay, that's what I was gonna ask. That but... I got like I got in packs that I was like, oh whatever, throw away. But they ended up being worth because they were just series one. They were worth like forty five bucks, so and I had enough of them that like it turned into a like at least a couple grand. At least half of them were stars though. Yeah, I had a lot. I had a very nice diversified i had all the all-stars i had all the mvps i had um all the rookies uh like i did i that's where i was sharp do you have kyrie irving in there i had plenty of kyrie (laughs) do you still own kyrie irving um in what sense i own him on the internet because he said their world was flat (laughs) well well, that's where i want to get to but do you own his moments (laughs) no i sold all those ones i made about five grand off so you profited off kyrie irving Hmm. I don't know how I feel about this, Nick. Did you feel morally compromised by that? I didn't think about it, man. I was just churning money. You're just churning money. But I mean, people have no idea what we mean. What we mean right now, so fill yeah. them in. So if you look up Kyrie Irving, flat Earth students, um, plenty of articles kind of pop up about. Uh, while I was in grad school, he said the Earth was flat on a podcast, and I had just happened to be teaching uh, plate tectonics. Which, if you know anything about plate tectonics. It is based on the fact that the Earth is round, um, largely. Uh, so I show a picture of this like round globe, and this is the day after he went on he went on another player's podcast and was talking about how the world was flat and had a lot of conviction, and it like people were laughing at him. It was in jest, but he was serious enough about it that like I couldn't teach plate tectonics the next day in class. Um, 
Because the kids all believed it. Because, like, Kyrie Irving had a huge following at the time. He still oh, does, God. obviously, but uh, he was, like, one of the big, big, big names then. Like, he's kind of, he's in, in, the, in the pantheon of, of NBA players. He's not at the top. Actually, is he the captain of the All-Star team? I don't think so. No, no I don't know. No, See, no, like, no. this is where my no, NBA knows. No, no, anyway, no. There's, a, there's not even a captain of the All Star team. Okay, whatever. But well, you know, he's he's on it. And I, did he make it this year? Yeah, he, he might. He was one of the starters. I know that. Yeah. Okay. Because I yeah. sold his moment. I don't remember when that was named. Um, Classic. Uh, so he said the Earth was flat, and all my students said it wasn't. And I just wrote my master's thesis on why it was so hard to teach after an NBA player uh, said the world was flat. And what what year was this? Like 2017, 2018? This was 2016. All right, I have it up behind me. In a recent story on NPR, middle school teacher Nick Garol said... <laughs> I was a student teacher, by the way. And I was the voice of all teachers for a, a brief 15 minutes in time. And I literally <laughs> had never stepped foot inside of a classroom as a certified teacher. But anyway, they got a hold of me. Nick Garol said his students started buying into the flat earth theory after hearing Irvin's comments. Garol says, and this is from the article, the original article. Garol says his students got the idea of a flat planet from basketball star Kyrie Irving, who said as much on a podcast. Quote, and immediately I start to panic. How have I failed these kids so badly they think the earth is flat just because a basketball player says it, Garol says, as he tried reasoning with his students and showed them a video. Nothing worked, however. They think that I'm a part of this larger conspiracy of being a round earther that's definitely hard for me because it feels like science isn't real to them. Yeah. And this problem has not gone away. Um, as I've gotten better at teaching, it's not as big of a problem for me specifically, but I mean... Do you reference this article all the time with your students now? I actually, I don't talk about it much. Um, I mean, it was like a cool thing, but I mean, like I said, I wrote my master's thesis on it. Um, and it's just essentially like the NBA brands its players way better than our country brands education. So mm. when when I'm put up against, as a student teacher, mind you, I don't have a lot of social capital with students as a student teacher. Like, it's very hard to be a student teacher because you're automatically the beta, sure. right? Because um, the t the real teacher is the real teacher. And when I step in front of the classroom, it's like substitute teacher land, like time to play around. So, so bitch? So some of that was going on. But, like, I, I, like, kept, I kept after it. And, like, there was some real underlying issue there. Um, so... Basically, what I came up with was uh, this is some nerd shit. So uh, the um, my girlfriend is a cognitive behavioral therapist, um, mm. and that's interesting. She put me on this thing called uh, the elaboration likelihood model, and it's going to be I'm going to try to explain it as best I can, but it's essentially like the science behind changing someone's mind, um, mm. and essentially, so like you anchor your beliefs in something, and um, moving someone up this likelihood model is basically the way to do that is through education. And on the lower end of the spectrum of the likelihood model is the likelihood that you will elaborate on an idea. If you have only heard a podcast where an NBA player said something, that's low on the likelihood model. So theoretically, if I elaborate more on that idea, if I teach them more about the earth, if I teach them more about science, but also if I build a relationship with that student where they trust what I'm saying is true, they will move away from that idea towards objective truth, and I will be able to change their mind. The only way I'm able to do that is if, is if, is if objective truth is on my side. Okay, so in the in in a flat Earth example, that's easy. 
thankfully. It's, it's harder than it should be, though. Yeah, it's harder than it should be. But again, there's a relationship piece. There's an education piece. And so I, I did my whole master's thesis on this elaboration likelihood model. I did like a little survey of all my kids and put them on different places. And then I, I tried to move them up. So what I did was I came up with this game called Spot the Fake News because fake news was a big deal back then. Mm -hmm. um, the Trump was like spewing it and it was just a big deal. So what I did was I, I listed 10 websites and they had to get points. And the way they earned points was by telling me if the site was real or not. So one of them was like a NASA site about climate change um, where I had all the facts and I had this checklist of like what is a reliable source and it, it like – it's like, is the author a scientist or is the author an expert in the field that they're talking about? Um, is it a .org, .gov, .com, .edu? Like you get, you should assign value to its reliability based on that. And then, so I had all these checklist things. And if you were good at the game, you were able to spot the real sites and weed out the other ones. Sure. A, a funny one is like the tree octopus. So there's like- What's that? Treeoctopus.com is actually built to help teach reliable sources. It's mm. this site that has all these red flags that it's not a reliable source. And it's about like this octopus that, like this species of octopus that lives in a tree. So you can go in the Amazon rainforest and find octopus, <laughs> octopi hanging from the trees. And like- It's a symbol. It's a, it's a yeah, it's a teaching tool. Yeah. So like that was one on there. And so I, I had them do 10 and like, Middle schoolers are really fucking competitive. I mean, yeah. people are competitive, but middle schoolers, middle schoolers are savage when it comes to competition. So you throw a homework pass as like their reward and like it's all gloves are off. So they're like going at it. They're having a blast. And then like the last site, the same kids that were super competitive with this game, the last site was flatearth.org. So they had, they had to reconcile the cognitive dissonance where they've been trolling me for a month that the earth is flat but to win the game they had to say that this site wasn't reliable that's fucking genius yeah so i changed a few of their minds that way did some of them not change their mind the ones that lost yeah so well, the ones didn't. that were already out of the game did. like they're like fuck you, Mr. Fuck Girl. you. <laughs> yeah <laughs> we're not going there <laughs> wow yeah. that's what what was that theory called again the elaboration likelihood model Mm. Um, that was a piece. I didn't explain it very well. Um, you explained it very well. Okay. You explained. No, seriously. I, I'm. A, I want to give you credit for that. That was. That was really good, and that hit well with that point because it drives it home as far as like you having to recognize between incentive and what you've been, what you've been saying. So you're reconciling what's true and what's not because you're forced to for your own gain. Mm -hmm. Now, anchoring is a very interesting point that we could elaborate on with that mm -hmm. and. I always look at anchoring as psychological a psychological re response to repetition. Mm -hmm. And I forget there's an official psychological term for this, but when the concept that when you say something enough, it becomes the truth to you, right? Or mm -hmm. when you hear something enough, it becomes the truth to you yeah. and you don't question Confir it. Confirmation bias. Yes, that's what it becomes, but there's another thing below that you're 100 right confirmation bias is a huge part of it because you already believe something and mm -hmm. now you want to hear it more but there could be like as an example someone could make a left turn and get in a car crash maybe and it was just a fender bender or whatever mm -hmm. and be told like no you made a right turn and then for whatever reason just be like oh i did and then as they keep telling the story over and over again oh i made a right turn eventually yeah. when they think of it in their memory they believe it was a right turn, even though mm -hmm. it wasn't. It's yeah. not like they're actively lying. They've just now been anchored to something. Mm -hmm. I always use a genius anchor example 
of what um what Trump did on the campaign trail with his very first speech back in like 2015 and then just repeated it and it's this overly simpleton thing that took a complex subject matter and made it way simpler than it could ever be but he convinced people because he just repeated it over and over again and it had a visual and it was memorable and all he did was he got up there and said we're gonna we're gonna build a wall and Mexico is gonna pay for it mm-hmm. and the more and more he said it the more and more people believed it could happen Despite the fact that not only had we not built a wall before and had a quote-unquote immigration problem, however you want to define that, we hadn't even really built fences. Mm-hmm. And Mexico is going to pay for it? Like, how is that going to happen? How are you going to tangibly going to be able mm-hmm. to show on a balance sheet that they did, even if you yeah. got to cheat it with trade tariffs or whatever? Mm-hmm. So everyone started saying it and was like, oh, shit, yeah, that's what's going to happen. Build a wall. Build exactly. A wall. Yeah. And then people who even didn't give a shit about illegal immigration suddenly did. Right. Mm-hmm. And you and you had this entire movement form strictly because he anchored people over and over and over again. So much so that when the Mex member like when the four previous Mexican presidents all came out within like a week and they're like, fuck that. This is not happening. Notice they didn't say you're not going to build a wall. This is back in like 2016 before he won. Mm-hmm. They didn't say you're not going to build a wall, Donald. They went from you're not even going to build a fucking fence. You're not even going to talk about that with us to we're just not going to pay for it. Yeah, He successfully anchored so much, regardless of what the policy point was or the fact that he didn't follow mm-hmm. through with it. He anchored so many people that even the presidents of Mexico who wanted to fight against this didn't realize that their cognitive anchoring dissonance, or however you say it, psychologically, mm-hmm. a lot of psychologists and people are saying, I fucked that up, but you know what I mean. Yeah, They are now coming in and, and, and not even realizing that they are now saying – they gave up ground. Mm-hmm. They gave up ground. Same way that if someone's negotiating with someone and they started on 50 and then somehow they're still fighting like a dog at 10. And if they got to 15, they'd call it a win. They don't look at it like I lost 35. Well, it's more than 35%. I lost 35 off the 50 points yeah. right there. They look at it as, oh, I gained five if they actually win that. Yeah, you know? that's like some art of the deal stuff. Yeah, it is. Well, yeah, a little pun intended there. Mm-hmm. But the, t- with your kids, they're so impressionable. Yeah, and they start to get down these rabbit holes, and when when you see these videos, Joe Rogan talks about this all the time. Mm-hmm. You listen to these videos, whether it be flat Earth or some other crazy conspiracy, there whether it's people who actually have decided to believe it or just total trolls who are like, "This is hilarious, yeah. and I'm going to get clicks." They sound really smart because mm-hmm. they plan it, they speak with all this quote unquote evidence or whatever, mm-hmm. and. People don't pay attention to the fact that they're citing the treeoctopus.com. They just yeah. go, holy ball, fuck me, it's flat. Yeah, you there's know? not a whole lot of accountability. Even though no. there's all this information out in the world, like, it's very hard. Like, people aren't being held accountable because people like to, it's an echo chamber. People like to, to confirm what they thought was true initially because it feels good to be right. And this is what gets us to the um, the three doors the three doors example. Oh, we were talking okay. about this earlier. Go yeah. go through that. This is from the movie. I'm gonna 21 test. I'm going to test you on it. Okay. Um, most people that I I, okay. So you, let's pretend you're on a game show, right? And I'm the host. All right. Three doors. One of the doors has a Lamborghini behind it. You can't mm-hmm. see it. It's like a Price is Right game. The other two doors have nothing behind it. Okay. You get to pick door one, two, or three. Okay. So choose a door. One. Okay, you chose door number one, okay? I'm not going to tell you if you got the right one, okay, with the Lamborghini behind it, okay? Rather, I'm going to take away a door that definitely doesn't have it. So door number three, I open door number three, okay? Mm-hmm. Nothing behind door number three. Now you're down to door number one, door number two. You have an option to switch your choice. Do you want to stay with door number one or do you want to switch to door number two? I switch. 
you switch. Yeah. So, you, regardless of where the Lamborghini is, you made the right choice, okay? And here's why. You changed your mind, which most people in that situation do not change the ride. They stick to their guns mm. because the door they chose first, be, even though it's random and it's shit luck, they, they think that they might have like a sixth sense. Like they might say like, maybe you, do you have a reason for choosing door number one other than just... No, you just asked me a door. That was the first number. Yeah. That so came some to mind. people, a lot of people, like might say, like, "There's a reason I chose door number one, right?" But for whatever reason, whatever the reason is, like people like to stick with their first instinct, right? But when you chose out of those three, right, there was a thirty-three percent chance that you were going to choose the right one. Okay. So, with the information you had, you had three doors and a thirty-three percent chance at at winning the car. When I take a door away. I'm, t I'm giving you information, right? You have, you, by, by switching, you value that information, right? Because it went from a 33% chance that, um, you were right to a 66% chance you were wrong. Okay. I'm not explaining that right. So let me rewind that. Yeah. Okay? Rewind that part. It's a 33, initially it's a 33% chance that you are Correct. There's a 66% chance that you are incorrect. When I chose door number one and you hadn't told me that door number mm -hmm. three wasn't it. Yes. Okay. Okay. I take a door away. Yep. All you right. Take away door what three. What are the chances you're correct? On With door one? After I take the door away, what are the chances that you are correct with door number one? 33%. It's still 33%, yep. right? What are the chances that door number two is correct? 66. 66%. It's not 50-50. So if it originally gave you just two door options, it'd be 50-50. Why? But, I always have trouble with that, though, because I, I, I know that's the truth because of – I don't even want to say because of. Like the way I concept it in my head, I don't think is correct. I know that to be the case. But why is it that now it's door two has 66 when you don't know whether door one is right or wrong? Because initially we, we established that there's a 66% chance that you are wrong initially. Okay? Yes. So given the new information, right? Oh, inverse given the flip. New, given Got the new it. information, you have a chance to put yourself in the 66% chance bucket. 95% mm. of people don't do that. Yeah. Okay? Now, this is a results over process issue, right? I opened door number one, the Lamborghini's there, you switched. You're going to be like, fuck your theory, Nick. You yeah. know what I mean? Like... But if you play that out a thousand times, 60, 660 times, you'll get a car. There's no hind. You cannot have hindsight bias. It's the same thing in, in poker. Like if you're playing Texas Hold'em and you know, based on deductive reasoning, you know, you have the best hand mathematically after the mm -hmm. turn, which is the fourth card. And there's yeah. one card to come. And you know that there are, there's one card in the deck that could beat you if the other person has the necessary cards to yeah. get that, if you're putting them on that hand. If they hit that, that is possible that it can happen. But if you played that out, you know, a hundred times, considering that minus the two cards in your hand and the four on the table, there's 46 other cards in the deck, there's a one out of 46% mm -hmm. chance that they're, not percent, but one out of 46 chance that they're going to hit that card. So you might get fucked on one, mm -hmm. right? But it, it has to do with, are you... Are you consistent the next time you have a choice like that? Do you still consistently pick the 45 out of 46% chance? Yeah. Therefore, over time, you are more likely to gain. Yeah. Just like on a slot machine, you know, you have X percent chance to actually win, whether it's 20 or 15 or whatever. 
yeah, you could play forever, but there are people who play forever and win the million dollar hand, but how much fucking money do they yeah. lose lifetime playing it and not winning anything? Yeah. The the point of that story was is as you gain information, it's okay to change your mind. Mm. And in fact, it's actually plus EV. Like it is it is better to as you gain more information, change your mind. We live in a society right now where I think it's like people don't change their mind. I'm a Democrat. Everything that Democrats do, I'm agreeing with because I stake I'm a progressive. What they do, I believe in. I get new information that uh, that the president did something that like given the given an objective like you remove Democrat Republican, I think should be bad. Like I'm not changing my mind about the Democratic president because I'm a Democrat, right? I'm anchored in that. Mm. And that's confirmation bias, right? I think that like one of the big problems is as you get new information, you should be more open to changing your mind. And then on top of that, as a society, we should be okay with people changing their mind. And we're not because you're we're wishy-washy. You flip-flop, right? I love this topic. So that's what I'm saying. Like that's, that's just like a human, that's this thing that human instinctually that we're just really bad at. A lot of it's tribal now mm -hmm. too because there is such an access to information exchange and the low barrier to entry, no barrier to entry almost, to putting your opinions out there and yeah. allowing other people in public, whether it be people in your network or I mean, even look just, at what we're doing right now. Exactly. I'm a middle school science teacher talking about markets. Yep. Right? <laughs> no barrier to entry to it. Yeah. All you had to do was you know talk about Top Shot with me and I'm like, yeah. well, I want to bring the Top Shot guy in here. Mm -hmm. Done. Right? And And by the way, Getting on my podcast for starters here to think of nothing, you know, taking time out of your day, doing all that. The barrier to entry to this is significantly higher than you sitting at home on your toilet and sending a tweet. Yeah. It's not yeah, even yeah. close. Mm -hmm. So that's that micro that we see all the time. And it's kind of funny because I'm hypocritical about it too. And I'll – here's how I'll explain. I'll use a political example. One of the things like politically – I'm not a socialist, right? So I'm not a fan of Bernie Sanders' policies. Never have been. That's mm -hmm. not a guy I would vote for. But one of the things that I've always said uh, as an enormous compliment to him is that I give him credit that if you look at the history of his career in politics, like even since he was on his honeymoon, you know, and, and or whatever, when he was in his 20s and ha held political beliefs and there was some public information around that, he's been consistent. Yeah. And it's like, oh my God. And I, he stuck, I, he sticks to his guns. I, ha I think I've said that on this podcast that I appreciate that. And a part of me is like, yes. At the same time, we vilify people for changing their mind when mm -hmm. new information comes in. We hold people to stances they had in 1987. Yeah. What the fuck kind of world was it in? I, I wasn't even alive in 19. I was, I was not even a thought in 1987. Mm -hmm. But we're holding people to that type of thing. In some, and it's this is the problem. It's subjective. It's a slippery mm -hmm. slope. In some cases, where you see people repeatedly flip flopping, and repeatedly being an opportunist, yeah. and it's not just politics. It's in anything. Yeah, you kind of know, like inherently mm -hmm. in your head, like that guy's a bullshit artist. Whereas when you see people on certain situations, as society changes or whatever changes, they change their opinion on something or how business is done or how this is done or that is done. We then crush those people for changing those ideas that they previously had a different public idea of when in reality we should consider the fact that maybe not all of them maybe they just got new information and they said you know what i used to think that but now i think this yeah you need to be able to explain yourself well yes um and i think like the i don't know if this is totally related but i have on the list i sent you <laughs> pundits are pussies <laughs> because what do you mean by that like 
they so what I mean by pundits is like news anchors, doesn't matter, Fox, CNN, whoever it is, like their jobs essentially are to hold people accountable for the actions that they they have, like hold our president accountable for um, sending troops into wherever. Right. And they I analyze the results of that decision over time and they continually offer their opinion on it. Right. So they're essentially holding people responsible for their actions. But where's the accountability for them? When they mm. offer an opinion, like when the when the president did this and this happened, it's because of this. And I I told you this was going to happen. You know what I mean? Whereas like for every one of those, like we're really bad at predicting the future as human beings. There's probably nine instances where they the the president made the right decision and they said it was going to go terrible, and like that accountability is not there, right? Like I just think like I don't know like how that this is totally related, but you know what? I, do you see what I'm getting at there? Hundred percent. Yeah, I look at the, you know the Trump presidency is such a case study and will be for forever for my lifetime mm-hmm. as far as looking at many concepts, but a concept like yeah. this. And to me, you know there there were every president has some sort of net positive. Trump had some net positives. You know whether you want to talk about bringing certain jobs back and stuff, which. I don't want to get into the weeds, but some of the ways he did that, I appreciate the intentions. I don't think the long-term model was personally smart, but that's my opinion. I could yeah. be wrong, right? Either way, there were some good things that happened through all the bullshit and all the mm-hmm. you know crazy drama. I thought, at least in my opinion, and I know the world is not a utopia, so this would just never happen because humans are biased and dumb when they get biased. If they had just fucking reported on him put no opinion into it just reported he falls flat on his face he walks into it himself how much how many times did he i mean look at how he ended he -hmm. gets himself in trouble by fucking talking too much yeah that's all he had to do but instead they injected all these opinions in it in it they effectively have gotten on both sides oh oh yeah Yeah, yeah. oh yeah no a hundred percent but when you look at the national media that has the most attention and has the most backing of the quote-unquote social platforms yes it is the left side yeah yeah yeah. so if you see the skew of the opinions it goes that way which if it didn't go if it didn't threaten things like free speech you know i don't know how much i'd care it does though like with actions we've seen which is another issue i don't want to get into that right now i want to make the overall point which is Instead, they injected the opinions into everything and created this, it's us against him. And they pushed a lot of people right the fuck into his arms. Mm -hmm. They put, and and I'll I'll speak for myself too. I've talked about this on the podcast, but I I look at myself politically, you know, I didn't vote for either candidate in the, in this past election here. And that was not, it was a decision I was willing to change my mind on, but that was one that I was comfortable with by 2019 when I saw like how this was going right before that though. I was a Trump guy and an Obama guy. How the Mm -hmm. fuck is that possible? Well, I'll tell you how it's possible with Obama. It's pretty simple. Like, you know, I'm in college. I'm fairly liberal, whatever. And Obama's like a cool guy. Country actually was coming out of the crisis, at least seemingly okay. I was like, all right, yeah, it's cool, whatever. By the time I got to Trump, when he started talking about the bias that we saw and how there were these narratives put out there and they were telling you what to do. Yeah. He wasn't wrong about that. Yeah. And so for me, when I go and do my own, like, well, what really drove me to it? That's one of the main things that did. Yeah. And I can think at the same time that then, okay, yeah, that's not a guy that politically I get behind now or have in a while. 
but also, yeah, he was right about that one thing. And now we're seeing it play out on this grand stage where we have this skew. Mm -hmm. And so if these reporters, and now you've rung bells, I don't know that you can unring. If they would just step the fuck back and do their job, which is to report without opinions the way you want them to do it and I want them to do it. Mm-hmm. We would get to the truth easier and we would see who's good and who and who's bad regardless of political party or yeah. political affiliation. I, I'm not I'm not saying that like news outlets can't have opinions. I think that's valuable, um, especially from people that are studying this stuff and researching this stuff. I think that's good because like the everyday person doesn't have time to research every single political move. They need it to be condensed and delivered to them in a, in a, in a way that's like that's part of the responsibility of media. I don't think it's been at the actual mm. utility of media probably for quite some time, especially in the last few years. And um, all that needs to be paired with that opinion is some type of accountability where – and that's tough too because you run you run sims on these things. Mm-hmm. Like there's only one result based on a, a, a lot of variables that are random. So, what, do you, what do you mean by that? You lost me a little bit. So – a president makes a decision. It's essentially like the flap of a butterfly's wings. Yep. Like what results of that is like, it's really hard to predict. Sure. Um, the result of that though, you can see the way it plays out, but you play that same scenario out a thousand times, you might've had the one out of a thousand result. Whereas like 999 times something else happens. Mm. We don't live in a situation where we could run that sim. I mean, you could, but- People, like you can't run that situation over and over again in real time and see and like like check the score yeah, on that decision. I see what you're saying. But there are ways to objectively hold people accountable to their opinions based on the results of decisions and et cetera. Um, there's a thing called a Breyer score, which again, What's that? it's uh, it's what people these people called super forecasters. Have you ever heard of like super forecasting contests? So they say like. Um, event X is going to have, uh, what effect will event X have on the price of gas? Right. So you say, I don't know, I, this is tough for me because this is getting into like stuff that I don't know a whole lot about. So like this, a Saudi Arabian prince, um, let's say, uh, rises to, to power. What effect is that going to have on gas prices? Right. Mm. These super forecasters in these contests, you should read the book called Super Forecasters. It's amazing. I have heard of that. Who wrote that? I forget, but it's a great book. <laughs> it's not in my queue, but it's like in my recommendeds. Yeah. So it's um so basically he this person ran this study with these these um super forecasters and they answered questions like this. Um and basically because his decisions are the results of his decisions are largely based on a large amount of variables that are essentially random. There's cognitive behavior, the responses to things, like all that. Like, because it's really hard to say, like, okay, I said that there's a 75% chance that the price of gas will go up based on the Saudi Arabian prince's um, actions, right? So in a contest where you're actually trying to hold people accountable to those types of um, predictions, there's a something called a Breyer score where I have to assign a 67% chance likelihood that the price of gas will increase, right? And the Breyer score takes that and compares it to what happened. And you, and if you are correct, as in 67% chance yes, and the price of gas goes up, you get more points 
because you were 67% confident as opposed to being 51% confident. So they give you points per, they give you points on a, on a, uh, confidence level, confidence on a, on scale by on, on scale. So, you mm-hmm. know, 50, 67 mm-hmm. correct is worth more than 51 correct, but 67 wrong and being wrong is worth more to the downside than yeah. 51 being wrong. Mm-hmm. And so then they do it off of every prediction so they can create an overall score and not just like, oh, you got it wrong, nah, 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 boo boo, yeah, this yeah, one yeah. time. Yeah, because like right okay. and wrong is binary. You're essentially creating yeah. a scale of correctness, um, which I guess kind of takes out the fact that you can't run these situations over and over again infinitely, which would be ideal. That would be where you truly get the objective result of what happened hmm. it's very much in the weeds right there um it's great though I but like a, a real world example of that is gambling right mm-hmm. so if i if i think that the patriots are going to win the super bowl and i am 100 percent confident i'll put my net worth on it right if i'm correct i double my net worth right if i'm kind of confident i put 50 bucks on it you know <laughs> like i'm essentially assigning a confidence level with the amount of my bet um, and that's what this percentage is, and that's how you get your Briar score. Same um, concept. Yeah. Wow. I love but that. But there's there's the, no there's no equivalent to that. There's no equivalent accountability to that when these pundits who are pussies, <laughs> because they do not like when people call them out on their shit. They don't. No. Um, and all all you have to do to be like an anchor is you just have to be super right about something one time. To be to be a commentator. Yeah, for yeah. people to believe you, like to get a following, like you got to be right about a few things a few times. And they and they they live off that. And they everything after that, that years. like you see it in sports, you see it, and like you just have to be right about a few things a few times early in your career, and you get a following, and that following will never never check you, which is a problem. <sighs> yeah, I mean, it, and look, it you end up drawing it on the political lines, but I don't want to do that. I just want to say objectively. The fact that the media hated Trump so much mm-hmm. drew them to literally anything but Trump makes oh, them yeah, feel yeah, great. Happened, so that you see it with Biden. Just, is like everything that they did with Trump, like Trump did this, so this is going to happen. No one on the left was checking the no. left. Could you, I mean, could you imagine if Trump had done 18 or whatever it was, executive orders in the first four days? And, and, um, and by the way, I'm just using math of the number of executive orders Biden did. If you go issue by issue maybe they're not a big deal or whatever but could mm-hmm. you imagine the hoopla that that would have had whereas when biden did it you know i mean fucking sean hannity's talking about it but no one gives a shit other than the people that are many, already in the tank how many other 18 were undoing trump's things i think i think a fair number of them. most of them were yeah so that's not a fair comparison and trump did do some in how's, my opinion some well how's it not fair if trump didn't do it to undoing Obama's things. And then let's also, yeah, let's okay. go very objective here. Let's forget the names Trump, Obama, and He just Biden. didn't do it the first day. He did a lot of undoing, just he it did. took him a lot longer. He did. So, and that's what they're saying. The rate of this appears that, and again, you don't know, over mm-hmm. time, are they going to do much, much more than he did? Forget the belief systems, because that can be politically argued. But how much of that is like you saying, well, because I like my political belief better and my political belief maybe lines up with Joe Biden's. Therefore, it was the right thing to do versus, well, that's my belief, but another person who's not a bad person thinks differently. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? I mean, I, 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 I'm in a weird political spot because I, in most of my conversations, if I'm having it with somebody who is very clearly left or very clearly right, 
they're pissed off at me at the end. Mm -hmm. It's just the way it goes. And then I've had two conversations on this podcast that were really pleasant where I had someone very left and then another one where someone was was very right and they, they went the opposite because maybe some of the topics we talked about really skewed to things that I was like, yeah, I kind of fuck with that, right? Yeah. So that's kind of the outlier. The negative part is when people are coming at you. But what I try to do radically is be like, okay, I'm a strong believer the answer is in the middle on a lot of things just based mm -hmm. on averages. God forbid I try to bring that up though. People say, well, no, that, that means that you're condoning the left principle or the right principle that we say is wrong. Mm -hmm. It's not like you can't just sit there and say everyone on the left is a snowflake jerk off with no job and everyone on the right is a Nazi. That's, these are ridiculous, ridiculous sentiments. Are there people on the far fringes of both sides yeah. that you can say that about? Absolutely. Yeah. But we end up taking those, call it five to ten percent, if it's that much, on each side, and making that the that's all yes attention and that's rule. No. Yes. That's, that's right and that's wrong. Where that's my problem. I just made the argument that having a spectrum of percentages is like objectively the best way to to kind of assign value to decision making, and well, just society just doesn't do that. Yeah. And I, I think about it a lot with this guy, Walter Cronkite, mm -hmm. on my wall because you know, it's not like I was alive when, when he was a reporter, but he's widely regarded as the guy who invented reporting on TV or was mm -hmm. the face of it and this brilliant reporter. And I remember learning about it in social studies, and it's a tough moral question for me because – the thing we the specific thing I'm referring to that we learned about was Walter Cronkite was on the ground in Vietnam mm -hmm. reporting. And that was really the first time on TV that you know reporters were reporting live from a war. And it's a uni I don't want to say universally, but a generally agreed upon point that the Vietnam War was a massive failure, didn't have mm -hmm. the right in the the right intentions behind it and you know whatever. And there were a lot of problems because a lot of people got fucked up in that war or died. Yeah. And in the context of history, Walter Cronkite reported on that and he very clearly took that opinion publicly. Mm -hmm. I think he's been proven right by that yeah. opinion. 100% yeah. agree. It's a slippery slope argument though. Because I look at that and I go, well, in that instance, he was 100% right. In my mm -hmm. opinion, I, I don't really think you can argue that. But he then did or did he set precedent for reporters after him to then say, well, you know what? I feel strongly about this, so I'll take this stance. Mm -hmm. And I have the same question, like a guy who I'm devastated didn't get pardoned is Edward Snowden. The one question that's not really his fault, I mean, it's just unfortunately psychology of humans, is because he did that, even if he was right in breaking the chain of command, what does the next guy then say, well, this this is enough for me to break it? Mm -hmm. And then the next guy and the next guy. Mm -hmm. It's a tough thing. Like you're, yeah. it's a shit or a fart. You're fucked either way. Yeah, I mean, I'm just, I'm thinking like for me, again, it's probably pretty clear that I'm, I'm pretty left. I think we're gonna look back on the reporting that was done on Donald Trump, and more of more of the reporting that kind of vilified him will be correct than not. I think like for the issues that I care about, at least. Mm, that's an that's a good that's yeah. a very good stipulation. So. Like I said, I'm not a markets guy. So yeah. he probably did some cool shit for the economy. Probably did some great stuff for that. Like, But to me, like the way, the, the, the effect that he had on the students that I teach, history is not going to look kindly upon him. Not, I agree. I had, not to, answer, I had yeah. to answer the question 
more than once throughout his presidency if if um if the, like I was going to get sent like not me but a student would say to me am I going to get sent back to Africa so yeah like the effect he had on my students like his presidency was to a certain degree defi- depending on how you define trauma was traumatizing I could I I could see that argument and I think yeah. it was traumatizing in the way that middle school students should not be thinking that much about the president honestly agreed and they were a lot someone i think it was anthony bacari was in here and you know he's someone who's very he was my bookie mm-hmm. when i brought in here is one of the funniest fucking humans of all time and he yeah. looks at things so objectively and like in his own lane he's not political at all but he was like you know if you're waking up and he said, I know there's some people who think with, you know, this policy or whatever, they're going to be dead or, or shit like that. And he's like, look, I'm not going to speak for them. Like, I know what I know. I know what my life is. You know, white male in New Jersey. It is what it is. But he's like, in general, more times than not, especially today with the access to communication and information being tossed around and information to push back against things that are wrong. Mm-hmm. If you as an average citizen are waking up every day and one of the first things or the first thing you think is X person is president and that is fucking my day or making my day incredible. He's like your priorities are in the wrong place and it's at, you're putting it on a pedestal that is actually way too fucking high. I don't really disagree with that. You know, I think there's enough of if someone's doing shit that you determine evil and maybe there were some things Trump was doing Mm -hmm. that people on the left determine evil. Okay, fine. There's enough, especially if if it's the right in power and the left being able Mm -hmm. to push back, especially with the media arm and all that. There is enough pushback that it's held in check. That's why there's not a fucking wall. You know, and and immigration, you know, as far as like campaign promises that weren't followed through, immigration wasn't stemmed at all. mm -hmm. You know, it's like any of the things that Trump was complaining about, right or wrong, that they're still there. That push, that push and pull is good. Push and pull is good. It's the wisdom of the crowd, essentially. Um, That's good. But I think that the president, like a good gauge of the president's uh, legacy, is how how is he looked at by the the kids who really don't have a whole lot of skin in the game, and I mean, to me, like, they were thinking a lot about the president. Yep. And I, I I mean, like I said, that's what I care about. And um, I mean, we. it's just like, if we're going to talk about this and I have this platform, I, I would not, yeah. I, I, I can't leave here without saying things like that. And I want to, before I move on, like, talk about how uh, I am an imperfect ally. You know what I mean? I grew up in a small town. Like, racism is baked into me in my subconscious and what do you mean racism is so implicit you? implicit bias okay why do you call it all right I, I, and i want to just make sure we're staying on topic here mm-hmm. i, I want to make sure i understand why do you call that racism so racism is the essentially it's an abuse of power it's the the definition of racism in, in my opinion is, is a lot like the definition of bullying okay it is there's a power dynamic where people in power are taking advantage of people not in power and it's repetitive Okay, and that is the the definition of of racism and um, racism, as far as that, like part of that abuse of power is implicit bias. Okay, Mm. so who has access to institutions? Who has access to certain networks? Okay, Um, and as an imperfect ally, I grew up with a lot of those messages kind of baked into my subconscious. Right. The way I interacted with people growing up and the way I interacted with people in 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 college was abhorrent, in my opinion. 
I, I am, I mean, I don't regret it, but I was very ignorant and I'm every day. One of the things that drives me is growing out of that mindset, which is largely subconscious. How, how so? Like when you say earlier in life, college before, Mm -hmm. because these things are baked into you, what, what things do you view as abhorrent? Like just day to day. So like, I mean, saying this on a podcast is dangerous, but I mean, I, I, I think part of anti-racism is owning up to your previous actions while also acknowledging that you have the ability to grow and, and, uh, grow from them. Like the way I interact with people and their experience mostly is like, I didn't value their experience. Like when, when someone of a person of color and, and so, was telling me like, I work twice as hard to get half of what you get. I might not have believed them. Right. Mm-hmm. And in, in reality, the, the truth of the matter is, is that is more true than not, okay? You, you, you're you assigning, like, that number values twice as much for half. But sure. A good example I saw on the news the other day is Misty Copeland. Do you know who Misty Copeland is? She's a ballerina. No, I don't know. She's she on is. the, I don't know the exact company or whatever, but she's, like, the biggest company on, on, on New York is, like, okay. she's the first black ballerina on the, on this, whatever, um, on, on the New York ballerina, whatever. And, like, for her to access that institution, she had to change. She had to sacrifice her blackness. She had to wear her hair a certain way. She had to put certain makeup on to make herself appear lighter. You know what I mean? Like, that is an experience that I don't know that people understand. And I can't, I, I cannot communicate that well enough, like, as, as, a, as a white person. But I just see it, and I don't think that I valued that enough growing up. Um, I also didn't encounter a very diverse population growing up until I got to college, and, and Bucknell is not a very diverse school. But in, in my interactions with people in school, like, I just did not value people's experiences. I don't, I don't disagree with the point you just made. Mm-hmm. I want to have you extrapolate on an example, though, to actually put it for people. Like, I can think of some things, but I want to make sure people know we have this in the right context. So you talk about she had to sacrifice some of her blackness to get to where she got. Well, I want you to define some of that exactly, but then I also want you to relate it to something way, in my opinion, that's way more simple and way less intrusive or invasive on your personal freedom or your ability to get what you want. And that would be something like the industry I came from and I'm a white dude, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, you see me now on a podcast, Corona, I just haven't cut my hair during Corona. It's down to my fucking, you know, past my shoulders mm-hmm. and, you know, I, I wear a hat. Could never do this working on Wall Street. Could never do this. I get fucking thrown out. You know, I can't. I can't wear a hat. Mm-hmm. I can't. I I gotta walk in there in in a button down and shit. My hair can't be. I mean, I guess some guys pull it off after they're very very successful, and it's rare. You know, as you're coming up in the industry, like I better cut my fucking hair. So where people would push back, people who are maybe. I don't want to even say ignorant, but some of them are just straight up ignorant. They'd say, well, we got to do that too. You just got to fit in or whatever. What is? What are some of the things that make it different for someone like Misty, Co- it was Misty Copeland, Misty you said Copeland. her name was, mm-hmm. coming into, you know, she spent her whole life trying to be a ballerina and get to the top of her game, which she did. Like what mm-hmm. kinds of things are like, oh, that's not just like playing the game. It was a standard. There were standards that she had to hold herself to that her fellow ballerinas didn't because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, like, what would some of those things be? Pretend I'm ignorant. Um. So one of those things b- would be is like I can't look at a ballerina company and see a successful black 
woman ballerina. Therefore, I can't automatically compare her to anything. Therefore, allowing her into that institution is somewhat of a risk because there's never been anyone like her before in that institution. So why bias, deep-rooted bias, that Mm. when this company was formed, there was probably a rule that said people of color were not allowed to access that institution, right? And of course, like you, you, you drop that, but it takes a lot of time for that to actually play out. Because there's some sort of inherent understood passed down prejudice that maybe a lot of people who have it don't recognize they have. It's not from mm-hmm. an evil place, but it's just kind of built in like, oh, that looks different. Yeah. I don't th- I, I, I do not so disagree that's like, with that. That's, yeah. like, that's what affirmative action tries to accomplish is eliminating that bias. Whereas we just give if anyone can reach that level to where they're in the room getting an interview, they get an, an inherent advantage according to affirmative action. Now, you can disagree with that because, mm. again, there's a there's a certain point where, like, from a utility standpoint, like, you want it the best hire, right? But that's, I mean, we're bad at interviewing people, number one. Mm-hmm. And number two, like, I just think, like, that bias is so baked in that you, you got to kind of, like, just try to eliminate that. And the only way to eliminate that is that if you reach a certain point, you get it. You know what I mean? If you reach a certain point and and someone, a white counterpart reaches the same certain point, we can say that you are just as qualified and because there is less representation for people that look like you, you deserve this chance over the the person who was white, okay? And people have a really, really hard time with that. Yeah, they do. Because it's the difference between equity and equality, right? Equality is, is everyone gets the same thing, everyone gets the same shot. You know what I mean? Equity is everyone gets what they need. The person of color needs a little bit more of a, of the benefit of the doubt in that situation or a little bit of like that baked in privilege of, oh, I don't have an uncle in this company that can vouch for me, right? So I need affirmative action is my uncle that mm. will vouch for me. You know what I mean? So that's what you get. And yes, that, that person, like the difference is between those two people is that might be the person of color's only chance to access that network, to access that institution. Whereas the, the, the white person, if they made it that far, they're probably going to make it that far somewhere else. You know what I mean? Just because that white person has privilege because they do not have to bear the brunt of bias, of prejudice. Which, whether you believe that exists or not, I guess that's where we fundamentally disagree. I can't. And and I'm trying to process everything you just said, and and I hate to say this, but I, I do love this topic because it's such it's a philosophical topic, and I hate that we have to love a topic like this and talk about it, but we do, right? Because these are realities we face. <sighs> Most of what you just said, I I agree with, and I think that you also can't argue with data around it, right? Mm-hmm. So you see. And you talk about that definition between equity and and equality and when put in the correct lens, I think it is a conversation that has to happen. What ends up happening is sometimes people on the left will hijack it and turn it into a socialism argument, which then people on the right hate, right? And Mm -hmm. then they just rail against it that way and ignore the overall issue that was brought up. Sometimes people on the right will take when the left is putting it correctly and hijack it and make it socialism when that's not what they're saying. And the way you just put it, I thought was brilliant because it was not, it was not based on socio or it was not based on the economic impact. It was based on the opportunity. Now, 
I mean, this would be a whole podcast in and of itself. So yeah. I want to stay I'm, with. I would, I'm, I would prefer prefer if, like, from a certain point on, that this was just us talking. I yeah. don't, I don't know if I'm super comfortable with having because this is kind of very close to like my sure my job, and like I did reveal like a little bit more than I I would have liked to. But you didn't, to be clear, and I'm I'm I get to listen. You know, you're in the moment talking. Everything you said was put in an educated manner. In, yeah. a, in a deliberate way, you didn't say anything that even yeah, approached rel- controversial? Relative I mean, relative to, to you, but as far as, like, I was speaking about the black experience about a white person, I don't know if I'm comfortable with that okay, being out fair. there. You know what I mean? Fair. So the one thing I, I do want to go to on this, though, before we get off it, based on what you just said, is where I start to see the circle of life on this having a bad effect is on some of the reverse racism that can come out of it. Mm-hmm. Now, what I want is a utopian world where we define people on the content of ca- character and not the color of skin or background of religion, creed, whatever it is. Everyone mm-hmm. is just free to go after what they want to go after and have the same level of competition in that way. And yeah, not, that, yeah. That, that would be great for capitalism because essentially everyone, yes. everyone yeah. has a fair shot and therefore the cream will rise to the top. That's not the case. Agree with you. Actually, yes, that's a. It would okay. be a great case. And for I, capitalism. Have a, I have a huge problem with the term reverse racism because, again, the way I define racism is power plus race prejudice. Yes. And as a white person, we hold the power objectively. So objectively, mm-hmm. sometimes where it can where and it's the minority of situations, in my opinion, but where we have seen and I'll give an example here where we have seen it go the wrong way and not get the intended result. By the way, it ends up hurting the overall objective is where you end up over delting on it and then causing, you know, whether it be like people talk about like racial apologies, like I'm sorry for being white or shit like that. Those are extreme examples. I don't mean that I'm saying like where people suddenly start coming out and you know, they, they automatically go for diversity over like okay well how qualified is everyone here and how much is the gap based on where you started one example i always give of a rule that i hate because i think it ends up being backwards for for coaches of color is the rooney rule Mm -hmm. in the nfl now to give context the guys who created this rule are i believe it was art rooney the second one of the roonies with the steelers i think had brilliant objectives. I don't think there was a bad bone in his body in making it fully support his objectives in making it. And Mm -hmm. what the rule is, is that every NFL team, and there are 32 now, has to interview at least one coach of color as a candidate Mm -hmm. in the hiring process. The problem with this is that two things. The number of white coaches to black coaches is obviously more because in society there are more white than black or coaches of color, right? There's, There's still more at this point in time. Secondly, we end up seeing I, I, I don't even know what word to use, but I'll, I'll just say like we end up seeing coaches get used and I'm not talking about white coaches. I'm talking about black coaches getting used. And what I mean by that is there are teams who maybe they have a coach, right? And they have a dream coach in mind. Give an example. The Raiders a couple years back, the Raiders had wanted to get John Gruden back for years they had wanted to hire rehire him for like eight years or however long Mm -hmm. it was it was a dream so they knew that if they could convince him to leave the monday night football booth they were going to fuck not only hire him but pay him a a ridiculous contract yeah so they go to fire i maybe it was jack del rio somebody who was right before them i think it was jack del rio yeah so they go to fire him 
and then they find out that Gruden's he's in like he wants to do it what did the Raiders have to do they had to hire or they had to interview a person of color yeah so what it, they had to call it I believe they did one of their coaches mm-hmm. I could be wrong on that in other examples it has been like a current coach on a team yeah. and here's how the con- this is not how the conversation officially goes but this is the connotation of that conversation <laughs> owner picks up the phone yeah hi so and so black coach X all right, so you and I both know we're going to hire John Gruden. We want to do that. But we have to comply with this Rooney rule. And they weren't hiring John Gruden because he was white. They were hiring John Gruden because he was a Super Bowl winning coach who they've been after for yeah, years. It yeah. has nothing to do with skin color. Mm-hmm. They're like, but because we got to follow that rule, we need, can you do us a huge favor? You're a black guy. Can you just come in and it's a sham interview, but can you interview with us? We'll ask you some questions and be able to say, check, we did it. Yeah, it turns that guy be based on the color of his skin who might be a great coach, might be a terrible one. No idea. Doesn't matter. It turns him into a tokenized object. Yeah. And to me, this is and again, this is just one example. Right. I believe that the majority of situations support what you're saying, which is that the institutions in America favor the party in power. And in this case, the party being like white. Mm -hmm. Right. Agree with that. What we need to look at, because I always look at slippery slopes, we talked about it on other things, is where are we letting that happen to where it goes so hard the other direction that not only do like do you have quote unquote whites losing, everybody loses. To yeah. me, the Rooney rule, everyone loses. And by the way, I think we have the least number of black head coaches in the NFL in like 15 years right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's like disgraceful at the end of the day. And if you look at the, I talked about the distribution of white coaches to black coaches, I believe, and we'll check this after, the distribution of black head coaches to white head coaches, that percentage is lower than the percentage of black overall football coaches in the league to overall white coaches. So you have fucked like the standard. Mm-hmm. The standard should be, at, if you wanted to have the equality of outcomes, the standard should be at least at that level of what is the number of blacks to, to whites. So we've like defeated the purpose with a rule that I don't think was created to defeat the purpose. Yeah, I think the rule was put in place because when there was no, none. I think it accomplished what it, it accomplished a lot in the sense of that it gave access to the institution of being a head coach, an assistant coordinator. I, I, maybe it has outgrown that. Because um, I think that like if a, if a, clo- if a coach um, is a person of color and, has has the chops has the the record they'll get the interview whereas when the rooney rule was made didn't matter how good of a coach you were you probably weren't going to get the interview i don't Um, disagree with that and so it might have outgrown it you know what i mean where it's now doing really a lot of things that it wasn't intended to do like tokenizing those um those people i hate that word but that's how i gotta put it because you know it's like the yeah so maybe so maybe we need to do away with it and see what happens um because it, it might actually be doing more harm than good. But at the end of the day, does the population of black head coaches reflect the population of uh, people of, sorry, do, does the population of people of color in coaching reflect the population of people of color in the league? No. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it does. Right I now. don't think it should ever, I, I don't think it will ever or or can ever, maybe. Should it be a, a, a complete one-to-one reflection? Maybe. But it's certainly not close and it mm. should be closer. Yeah. And maybe the Rooney rule is not the answer, but I I think that it it's it, it certainly helped move us forward since that time. And that's a good point. It doesn't mean that when it was created it didn't do net 
positive. Mm-hmm. There's probably plenty of coaches that can trace their sure. shot back to that. And by the way, the Steelers, who have been owned by the Roonies forever, they walk the talk with that. Mm-hmm. First of all, they're very good at keeping coaches for a long time. They they believe in building a culture. They've done mm-hmm. that. They, I think they've had three coaches in like the last 50-some years. Mm-hmm. And guess who their coach is now for the last 13, 14 yeah. years? Mike Tomlin, mm-hmm. who is a black head coach who wasn't you know, he's obviously been aged as a fantastic coach now, but they also took a chance on hiring him because he wasn't, he was never like an offensive yeah. coordinator or defensive coordinator. They, they just saw a leader and mm-hmm. they have given him the chance to be great for years. So they walk the talk with that. Mm-hmm. And you raise a good point like, okay, is something created that is a net positive, clear net gain? Eventually, does it have diminishing returns and become a net loss? How do you then determine what are the metrics yeah. to determine I think you, that? I think you have to. I think where we're going with this is let's say let's do away with the Rooney rule and see what happens. Yeah. And I think you have to attack it from the other way. You have to you have to implement some type of rule that that combats nepotism, which I think is a huge problem in the NFL. Mm. So I think that is the bigger issue right now is not head coaches of color getting access to interviews. I think I think for largely again, this is where I'm uncomfortable talking about the black experience as sure. a white person. Sure. Because if you ask a a person of color, what their experience is, they may disagree with this. But largely, I think that head coaches of color do get access to interviews more so, or maybe to the to a degree that is a little bit more fair or equitable. Um, whereas nepotism is rampant. Like, look at the Vikings. I just heard something about the Vikings. Gary Kubiak's nephew, son, whatever. He's the offensive coordinator for the Vikings. He does not deserve that job, objectively. He does not have the track record. Like, he's just a Kubiak. You know okay. what I mean? Yeah. So I don't know how you combat that. That's what's sticky. That's icky. Yeah, which That's some people gross. could argue against, and, and mm-hmm. I know nothing about it. But some, I, I agree with you because you see a lot of it. Belichick's son is a coordinator. Mm-hmm. Andy Reid's son, who actually just got fired because yeah. of his stuff off the field, cord, or, linebackers coach like serious position coach Mm -hmm. so yeah i I agree and then again it's a case-by-case basis Mm -hmm. do some guys have the track record that one i don't know other guys i could say yeah i I don't think he would have ever had that Mm -hmm. if he didn't have x last name Mm -hmm. you know so it's 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 an interesting conversation we could do a whole podcast on it but i I think you spoke on that very very well I, i know obviously like it hits close to home because of what you do every day and, and, and who you do it with and, and your student population and understanding that. So, you know, to be able yeah. to speak clearly on it and, and, you know, speak to somebody like me who's not in that environment and have me take it like you coming from a good place, I, I think is a very good result for you. So the, the thing is like uh, one of the reasons why I love teaching and my school specifically is I think we do a really good job of giving our students access to networks they otherwise wouldn't have access to, mm. to institutions they otherwise wouldn't have access to. So we have students that are going to schools like like high high profile like private schools like Penn Charter, et cetera. But like we also have students going to like vocational schools, which sure. I mean they probably would have been able to, to get there without us, but behind them they have the network of us, which is essentially the Episcopal Church, the um the network that we have access to, they have access to. Um we take plenty of field trips, we partner with mentors and, and everything. So that like that is that is a big deal. I think in education and our public schools aren't giving access to that type of thing to, to students of color. Um, even in like the great public school systems, they're not doing that. Um, maybe they're doing it, but they're not doing it well. Um, and, and 
yeah. So I don't know where I'm going with that. Um, yeah, the whole thing. It's kind of, well, you're, you're stating things that I think are backed up by serious evidence. Yeah. Um, it's, that's what it is. It's the reason why I, I do what I do. And, um, I, I think why I'm such a, I'm, I'm pretty bullish on, on my school. <laughs> yeah. Well, your, your passion rings through and <clears throat> I know, sorry, I was just choking on some water there, but, um, I, I, I know you coming in here was was around Top Shot and everything, like we said, and we had a great long conversation on that. But I, I like that we went into a totally off-the-road turn with, with some topics around stuff that's personal to you. And and I'm not going to lie, I didn't say anything, but a, another thing I did want to at least ask you some things about, and obviously like now we're, we're, we've been doing this a while and we're almost out of time here, so we're not going to get into it as much as I want to. But you know, y- you are teaching, as, as you've mentioned, during this whole thing, and you're teaching – regardless of who you're teaching, you're teaching during a time that's hard for all teachers Mm -hmm. and all students because we're in Corona and I know for a long time you were completely remote and you can talk about that, but now you're seemingly mostly in person. Um, From the outside, you know, I feel very lucky and fortunate that I am not a kid who's in school and that even goes up to college and stuff Mm -hmm. because of the trajectory of learning that was that was yanked from people for a long time mm-hmm. there, whether it be two semesters or even still so now with people, regardless of age, depending on where they're at, still mm-hmm. being totally remote or even partially remote. What do you? What have you seen from your seat, having been remote for a long time and seeing like the different world we're in, as far as like the progress of your students over the last years, uh, over the last year, and how Corona has affected the projected trajectory that you would have wanted for them without corona having happened honestly this might be surprising but it leveled the playing field a little bit honestly what do you mean by that um so there's an education gap where my students come into fourth grade at my school two three four grade levels behind in reading and math right this kind of put everyone on a little bit more level of a playing field so first of all, you gotta you gotta rewind why they're coming to us from schools that aren't very good because mm. they're in uh, neighborhoods where um, property taxes are lower, therefore the schools get lower resources, and it's just because sure. because school funding is tied um, to a certain extent to property taxes. Areas that are desirable to live in have better schools, and it, it kind of is like a positive feedback loop. Yep. If you have a good school, people are going to want to live there. They'll pay more taxes or whatever. They'll buy more expensive homes, which therefore can be taxed more. Mm-hmm. Um, that's my understanding of it. Um, so because of that, they're coming to us from not so great schools, right? And when Corona hit, everyone went to a virtual school, which kind of eliminated some of the advantages, right? So our school is actually doing really well. Like our test scores are phenomenal because um, we did COVID learning very, very well. And I think that we're very unique in that. So I might Ow. not be the best person. Just we have resources. We <clears throat> we were able to buy every kid a laptop like right away. We were able to do online learning and have a schedule that was basically the same schedule that they would have in person, just all virtual. And, and you didn't see – a big loss in retention so, through that? So the end of the school year last year was rough. They basically, like, we weren't able to do much yeah. other than um, we had them come to the school, like, 
every day if they could, maybe once a week to like get food and check in and just say hi. Um, I was assigning a lot of like what we call asynchronous work where like I just assign it and they do it and I'm on Zoom if they need help. And not a lot of kids were doing that work. Yeah. But what we were assigning, they were reading, they were doing some stuff because their test scores like are really good. And a lot of that progress we're seeing is relative. Okay, because a lot of standardized testing is not you reach score 55, you're proficient. It's no, what percentile are you on the scale? And the the messed up thing with it is, is that these under-resourced schools are being held to the same standard as the very well-resourced schools. And the very well-resourced schools are setting the curve. Mm. That's where the enormous inequity is in education, is that if we change the way we 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 did and instead of saying like if i'm a school if i'm a school teacher in in west philly at an under-resourced school i don't need to beat the suburban kids i just need to hit this mark you know what i mean standardized testing is incredibly good at reinforcing the hierarchy you know what i mean because if i'm a school teacher in in west philly like i said like i can teach them all the words I can teach them everything, but if if it was easier for the kids in the suburbs to learn them, they're going to score higher than my kids. Um, and I'm I'm working so hard not only to get them to that level, but to catch them up. You're saying it's easier for the kids in the suburbs to do it because of their prior education advantage. Well, I mean, it at starts a at like age. a very yes, yeah, yes. I mean, the number one leg up that well-resourced areas have is like access to pre-K. Mm. And that's that's a big one. No one talks about that. Yeah, that's a, that's pretty big in the education circles. That's is, what I'm saying. Like access. in your circles, it is, but the general yeah. public. And unfortunately, I don't know that there's a lot of backing politically for like like universal pre-K, like uh, government funded. Um, I think in like really like Philly, Philly is getting there. Hopefully, mm. um, so it starts there, and then it's like reinforced over and over and over again. Um, it's like a pipeline, you know what I mean? So, yeah, so that's that's a big thing. And it's like their their schools are well-resourced from the beginning, whereas like largely in these under-resourced neighborhoods, it's, it's, is the teacher good, right? And unfortunately, a lot of, there's not, there's not, there's, there's a lot of bad teachers yeah. because it's easy to become a teacher. And why is it easy to become a teacher? Because we don't pay teachers that well. Yeah. Compared to, if I'm a really smart person, like, and I have the intelligence to, to teach really well teaching the here's a cool example a little another flex for me the amount of decisions i make in a day is equal to or greater than the amount of decision the amount of decisions a brain surgeon makes objectively in a classroom mm. full of 30 students in a in a eight hour day the amount of decisions that i have to make and if we want to say the amount of decisions you have to make is relative to how difficult your job is is equal to or greater than that of a brain surgeon. And that's, that's a loaded one. And the decisions, the amount of decisions I'm making are maybe a lower stakes, but it depends on what you define as high. Um, these are lives. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? I should, I should bring you in here and do a whole separate podcast yeah. on, on these yeah. topics. Cause so, we would just go off forever. Yeah. So anyway, I mean, we could go on and on and on, but um, that's kind of like where the inequity kind of reinforces and sure. and you you get these like these really big gaps because I mean and is that is that a feature or is that a bug? Mm. You know what I mean? I like how you put that. Now you you mentioned though that in your particular situation it appears as if COVID has been more positive than the average school. 
or the average student. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Because, like I said, all of that inequity, like those fancy computers sure. that they get, like my school was positioned to give that access, mm. right? And on top of that, another flex, we have very high-level teachers at my school. Yeah. So our teachers were probably a little bit more adaptable to a virtual learning environment than maybe even like the suburban teachers were. Right, and I'm saying like suburban versus versus urban. That's not fair. We'll we'll, we'll split it into resource versus under resourced. Yeah, because yeah, it's it's a little bit too much of a generalization. Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I like the second one better. Um, I agree. And on on top of that, like I'm teaching a I'm teaching in a neighborhood that is under resourced, but my school itself is very well resourced. Mm. So um, so that's another thing is like it's an outlier. We kind of yeah, very much an outlier. Um, so we kind of cut out that variable, right? And then you bring in another variable. Okay, all of a sudden we're all virtual. Okay, who's who's best equipped? Okay, so if I have the same resources as middle school B, and uh, middle school B is is teaching in a more well resourced neighborhood, okay, we're gonna see who's the better teachers, right? So our test scores say that we are. Yeah. You know what I mean? And it'd be interesting to see the data between like a public school in an under resourced neighborhood versus a public school in a well resourced neighborhood. I don't know if the, I don't know if you would see like something like the test scores kind of stayed where they were before COVID pre or it got worse. Everyone dropped. Yeah. Did and, the did the well resourced public school drop more or less? And, and or do the you think same? we've seen enough results now to be able to say for sure with COVID, or is there still you kind of need to see it three, four, or five so years down the line? Up. It's everything's so messed up right yeah. now. It, it's gonna be everyone took a hit. Well, Even us. Well, one one last question on it because this this is like kind of the heart of the issue. There's been a lot of controversy around how, especially in the public sector schools, how governments have decided what local governments, whatever, what schools are open, what the schedule is, remote versus in person versus all remote, all in person, and assuming your situation is more of an outlier. There has been a large net loss in the public school sector, it appears, and we need to see data down the line here, in net learning and net productivity and therefore net education over the last year or so. What have your thoughts been around how with corona, this unprecedented virus that until now didn't have vaccines, highly contagious, whatever, what were your thoughts around in retrospect how the government handled it with shutting down schools and then also even to this day in, in many cases not reopening them and, and, mm -hmm. and not doing it at capacity? I think it's a really hard problem to solve. We were able to solve it faster than most because we're small and well-resourced. Enough time has passed where our government – local, national, should have figured something out. Mm. It is one of the biggest things I think future generations will look back on us and say, they opened up outdoor dining before schools. They put money, time, and effort into opening up X, Y, and Z before schools. doesn't matter what it is yeah. before schools because it's essentially when you're layering restrictions, you got to layer them in a way that covers up all the holes, okay? It's like Swiss cheese, right? Mm -hmm. As as we get vaccinated, as you start to pull off layers. So one of those first layers that should have been pulled off should have been schools, and it wasn't. And that's a, that's a problem. It shows that we do not value education as a society. 
I'm I'm biased on this because I, I have some cousins who I'm close with who have been teachers for years, and mm-hmm. they talk. They're very, very much like you. They're very, very informed on this stuff, and they've been talking about it for years. And so, I could see from the outside that there's a lot of broken things in our education system. If you just take a glance, like just a basic high level in the air glance, you can mm-hmm. see it. But hearing details over and over again, maybe some of it's confirmation bias on my end. But I agree, and I think that net. Overall, your situation aside, really bad situations aside, okay situations aside, just putting them all together, net we are going to see some downstream effects that are not positive in the next few years. And, you know, I'm also, you know, in in the camp that there is a personal responsibility to things and, you know, governments have, have fucked up at every level along this entire thing, state, local, federal, whole nine, I can point to a million fucking things. And I think that you saying that, us looking back and not and judging harshly on not opening up schools is going to be correct. I agree mm-hmm. with you. And I just happen to put in the same lens the overall economy and the overall ability for human beings to go out and make decisions for themselves. And that's a whole separate conversation, but I, I, I appreciate you making the point and, and leaving it in the sand like that as, as a clear line because, look, I think that commentary is going to age well. And I think you've had enough time now also – taking into account your own bias of your own situation to then look at the full playing field and say like, yeah, you know, there's some problems here. And I think that's admirable for yeah. a teacher and to think, be able like, to say that. The, the problem of, of reopening, like let's say something like outdoor dining, I think that's an easier problem to solve and might take less overall like resources than opening up public school systems. That's a tough, tough problem sure. to solve. Sure. Enough time has passed where we should have we figured it out by now. I no, think. no one wants to be the first, Nick. Mm-hmm. No one wants to be the first to get yeah. sued. And also on on top of that, like, I mean, it's it's it takes a special kind of person to teach during a pandemic in person, um, without being vaccinated. But to me, like, if you're in it for the right reasons, like, this is very much an opinion. If you're in it for the right reasons, like, I not once like thought about that. You know yeah, what I mean? Good for you. Like even like even like uh like the risk involved is like, it's like. I mean, even if the risk was high, like if the opportunity is there to like be in front of the kids and teach them, like that's part of why I took up the profession. You know what I mm-hmm. mean? Because schools are not just places where kids sit down and learn. They're they're essentially when they are like working properly, they're community hubs. Yeah. And it just it was me for a no. It's, it would have been a no brainer to just open up community hubs and have those be like areas where kids are getting their meals and and stuff like that. And yeah, it's tough though because there's a lot of variables in that. Um, but I think we we kind of completely were like, we'll just keep them closed. We'll worry about this stuff because people seem to value that a little bit more. And there, there's a there's got there had to be some type of give and take there, and there was no give to the school. There was a lot of lot of take. Well, we can be objective and look at this the same way we've looked at other issues in this podcast, where you look at data. Look at hard numbers. And the fact, first of all, I appreciate that that was your mindset and you are clearly a guy who's in this for the right reasons and loves what he does and has backed it up with every action you've mm-hmm. taken over the last eight years of your life. Yeah. But, you know, the fact of the matter is, yes, have we seen people who are 20 years old die of coronavirus? We have. Mm-hmm. We have. Yeah. Yeah. So but, I, again, I do, I do, I don't think so like t- the, the Philly teachers like had a big strike because they were going to open up the schools without giving them. Before, so it was like one A is is like frontline healthcare workers, et cetera. One B was teachers. 
Well, so, there's there's a difference too between the sixty five year old teacher who's maybe yeah, a yeah, touch yeah. overweight and you. Mm-hmm. That's my point. Yeah, you and your kids. If I want people getting corona, I want you getting it because the data yeah. shows me you are in, in all likelihood minus comorbidities yeah, yeah. and stuff. You're gonna be fine. Yeah, what I was getting at is like the pe- the 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 teachers striking. I'm not saying they're bad teachers; they're in it sure. for the wrong reasons, reasons yeah. et cetera. Like I I think that they actually got some stuff done. Like Chop is Chop is vaccinating like basically all Philadelphia public school teachers. Oh, that's awesome. Right? I didn't so know. there's like a pipeline right there. So yeah. they got something done, which I think is good. But at the same time, like it's just like. I don't know. It's it's tough because again, I get. I guess I can't blame the government because what were they going to do? Open it up before vaccinations, like three months ago. Like yeah. apparently, teachers weren't going to go and go into the classroom. So I get I get it from that standpoint. Um, so yeah, I, I guess like when I say that we'll look we'll look back and and blame the government for not opening up schools. Like you can't. It's not fully on them. Um, it's just like a really shitty situation, and that's what people struggle with with this whole Corona. It, it just sucks. Yeah. And there has to be sacrifices. And no one's mm-hmm. life is as good as it was before corona. No. And, like, we try to blame people for that. And it's random. It was a random event. And we're trying to blame the government for how they're handling it. I, I do think that more often than not, even the people in power are probably doing their best. And there's that push and pull. And... I mean, there's plenty of people in there that are that are in it for personal gain or they're trying to help a certain group of people that, that they believe deserve something more than others. But at the end of the day, like in this situation, like it doesn't matter. Like everybody's losing. And that's why everybody's upset. And that's why like people are losing faith in the government. People are losing faith in the economy. But the economy's doing fine now. But yeah. If I touch that one, we'll be here for like another four hours. Yeah. So that's that's a good spot to leave it. But uh, listen, dude, this this was great. Love that this came together quick mm-hmm. with, with yeah. a very timely, timely episode going yeah. through Top Shot. Yeah, definitely. So thank you for sharing everything. And I want to track your progress there, see if you jump back in there, or especially when the NFL comes up, oh, you know, how hard oh, you go in. We're going to feast if this comes to the NFL. All right, good. Yeah. Well, <laughs> anyway, and I also appreciated the second, you know, the last third of that conversation going yeah. into some outside-the-box stuff. I thought yeah, it was really, definitely. really good. Definitely. So, thanks for coming in, brother. Good All to right. see you. It's been, good stuff. It's been too long. See ya. You've changed a little bit, but... Oh, yeah. <laughs> every, everyone else, give it a thought. Get back to me. All right. Peace. Later.